Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. This week we are back at it again with a collection of great scary stories for your listening pleasure. I really hope you enjoy them. Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Hello from Beijing. I believe that I'm patient zero of a future zombie outbreak. Written by Two Phones, One Paper. Hello, my English name is Amanda Liu, and I'm a master's student at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. As you may agree, China is flawed from a political standpoint. Most of the people in my generation know this. To be fair, I have friends in the Western world who feel the same way about their own leaders. As we have seen recently, viruses have no borders and it is incredibly important that the world is aware of my condition. I resent having to use a VPN and just to post on this. Government censors are preventing me from telling my story through any form of Chinese media. I write to you now in what is a rare state of lucidness. Before my death, I would like to make my story known. The source of my illness did not come from food or animal origin. Some strange food is consumed here, but the strangest of these foods, like bats and pangolins, are only consumed by a very small percentage of the population. You could compare it to the number of Americans who eat possum or armadillo. I personally like Subway and Pizza Hut, which is very popular here. As part of my master's project, I traveled to a remote part of Yunnan province in order to document one of the world's rarest known mushrooms. It is known here only by its traditional name, which roughly translates to black brain fungus. The myclium, which acts like roots of mushrooms, has only been found growing in underground caves deeper than 200 meters. No one has ever documented the fruiting of this mushroom, which is what happens when the myclium produces its reproductive organs above ground. So, you can imagine my joyous surprise when 300 meters underground, in total darkness pierced only by my head torch, I stumbled upon the potentially first ever discovered fruiting specimen. The mushroom had a grayish brain-like texture on the cap. This brain was punctuated by a number of pores that oozed a tar-like liquid. Now one might be disturbed by its appearance, but to me, it was beautiful. The smell, however, was that of rancid flesh, making me gag as I approached it. I took many photos, over 100 actually, wanting to capture it from all angles. I then attempted to take a spore print. To do this, I have to cut off the cap of the mushroom, which I feel bad about doing, but it is essential to the further research of this species. As I begin to cut the stem, the cap suddenly inflates like a puffer fish, the black tar squirting onto my gloves and shirt, and then, just as suddenly as it deflates, leaving me choking on a cloud of dust like spores. Despite a ruined shirt and a lungful of spores, I bag the cap of the mushroom and begin my ascent above ground, followed by a very long train journey home to Beijing. The symptoms came the next day. Flu-like headache and loss of appetite. 
I also got my period two weeks earlier. I thought that it could be the virus, but I had taken mandatory tests when re-entering Beijing. Having tested negative, I could continue to work in the lab at my university. I took my spore prints and thoroughly documented my specimen, using these standard methods. On the third day of my return, my boyfriend Tao really started to worry about me. I wasn't eating. I had no appetite, but my stomach was constantly rumbling. He made me stay home in our apartment and kept trying to feed me my favorite foods. He is really kind, but whenever I tried to eat something, it tasted so bad that I felt like puking. On day four of not eating, Tao took me to the hospital. They ran all types of tests on me and asked many exhausting questions. All I wanted to do was sleep. I felt very weak. They put me on an IV and kept me overnight. Tao stayed with me. I don't remember anything, but he told me as best he could what had happened. In the middle of the night, I suddenly stood up from my bed, awakening Tao, who was asleep on a folding bed beside me. My eyes were open, but I was unresponsive like a sleepwalker. I slowly started to walk out of my room and down the corridor, my mouth slightly agape. Despite the late hour, there was still some activity in the emergency wing. Someone was being amputated in a nearby operating room. I was apparently captivated by this and when a nurse packaged an amputated leg for disposal, I followed. She brought it to a transfer facility to be made safe, a room where they prepare hazardous waste to be transferred and incinerated. Tao tried fruitlessly to wake me and told me back but as the nurse left, I slipped into the empty transfer room and tore through the thick plastic waste bag with my nails. Tao described me as having inhuman strength and nothing he tried would stop me. When I brushed him away, he was knocked down with incredible force. I consumed the entire leg, ripping me flesh from the bone like a rabid dog, the bones then crunching like cereal in my jaw. Thinking back on this, I'm so ashamed. How can my body and subconscious commit such a savage act? Tao did not state this, but I knew his opinion of me was gravely tarnished. I'm however so thankful for him as he stayed by my side and did not give up on me. He cleaned the blood from my face and hands that night. He found me new clothes and managed to get me back into my bed without alerting any of the staff to what I had done. I asked him why and he said, I didn't want them to take you away. When I awoke the next day, I felt re-energized and was actually smiling. I was released despite Tao's insistence that they do more testing. But the doctors needed the beds for other patients and they could find nothing wrong with me. When we got home, that's when Tao told me of my midnight episode. I didn't believe him, but he showed me the blood under my fingernails and I broke down crying and afraid. I tried to throw up in the toilet, but nothing came up. Tao was worried that if it happened again, he wouldn't be able to control me. I was too strong for him. We agreed that he would tie me to the bed tonight, just in case. I had been tied to our bed before, actually, and not against my will. 
Despite it, my boyfriend was not attracted to me that night, and I can't blame him. He was very quiet and he kept his distance. I was worried that he would never see me the same way again. I wanted to prove to him that I was a normal person, but I had trouble believing it myself. I mean, what was happening to me? Tao spent the day on his PC playing his favorite game, Sword and Fairy, a replica of a sword from the game on the wall above him. I'm glad that he's playing it now, keeping busy. I used to hate to see him play it so much when I was in need of attention and I admit, I sometimes fantasized that the sword above him would fall on his neck. When I fell asleep, I had nightmares of being trapped in the cave. The rancid brain-like mushrooms surrounding me, unleashing their spore clouds. Tao was not in bed when I woke up. I was still tied. When he saw that I was awake, he came over to untie me. Did I do it again? I asked him. And the look in his eyes said it all. I lifted my legs and wrists and they were scratched from where I had struggled against my restraints. As Tao leaned over me to free my arm, I saw the mark on his ear. What happened to your ear, Tao? He didn't answer at first. Tao, in the night, you bit me. I was devastated and afraid, and even though I didn't know at the time what this would lead to, I didn't know if I was more scared of what was happening to me, or more afraid of losing Tao. I'm sure that he saw me for what I was now. A monster. And to take my mind off things, I returned to the lab to continue my studies. It was the weekend and I was there alone. I was studying the spore print under the microscope. I had isolated a single spore on a slide, and what I saw was unlike any spore that I had seen before. It resembled a virus rather than a spore, but on a much larger scale. On top of that, it was moving. I had to prepare three more samples to be sure, while explaining the third slide I coughed, and to my shock, a dozen more spores appeared on the slide. I took a clean slide, spat on it, and confirmed that my saliva was full of spores. Panic set in. When I'm anxious, I clean, and it somehow makes me feel better. I thoroughly cleaned all of the equipment, with the strongest disinfectants in the lab. I packaged the mushroom cap in the spore print and a dozen layers of specimen bags and I labeled it as extremely hazardous before, storing it in the alt freezer. In the hall of my apartment building, I ran into my neighbor's child. When her parents are fighting, which is often, she plays with her dolls in the hallway outside of her door. When she saw me, she fled back inside her apartment and locked the door. As I entered my own apartment, I looked in the mirror. I had dark circles under my eyes, which themselves were dilated and bloodshot. My skin pale and my lips were a grayish purple. The feeling of not liking my own reflection is familiar to me. The feeling of being frightened by my own reflection was heartbreaking. Just by looking at Tao, I knew that he was infected too. He started experiencing symptoms the next day. They were the same as mine, but at an accelerated pace. He did not get his period. At this point, I attempted to notify the media, 
to warn people of our sickness. No one that I spoke to took us seriously, and all the posts that I made online had disappeared within an hour. It was like screaming my warning into a void. I called my parents who lived in Shandong. I did not give them the full story, but they were still concerned and volunteered to come look after me. I told them that I would get over it soon. I didn't want to subject them to the illness, and entering Shanghai is difficult under the current restrictions. Tao and I took turns sleeping that night, each of us watching over the other. Tao reported increased thrashing in my sleep. I even broke one of the restraints. My hunger was returning. During my turn watching over him, I was constantly chewing on my own nails until there was almost nothing left. If this was a nerves or hunger, I do not know. The next day, we stayed in. I knew the mushroom was the source of our sickness, but Tao spent all of his time online researching our symptoms. When he stood up, I thought they had found something, but he was unresponsive. He must have fallen asleep at his desk. He stood there for a long time, not moving, and back turned to me. There was a voice in the hall outside. His attention snapped towards the door, and he grabbed the handle, fumbling with the lock. I tried to stop him, but he brushed me aside and pulled the door open. The young girl was out there again. I could see her through his legs, sitting on the floor with her toys spread out around her in a circle. Tao grabbed her by the leg, lifting her with ease towards his drooling mouth. The girl screamed. I jumped on Tao's back and my arms around his neck. He thrashed around to throw me off. His jaw snapped mechanically open and closed, inches from the girl. I swung all my weight against his neck, causing him to topple backwards through the open door of our apartment. We tumbled as a group, crashing into his PC desk. He dropped the girl as he fell, and I yelled at her to run. But she only sat there, paralyzed with fear. I hit Tao in the head with a heavy ceramic plant pot, but it didn't even phase him. He tossed me aside, and I crashed into the wall next to his computer. He pounced on the girl, like some great possessed ape. Tears streamed down her face. There was no chance of her escape. And that's when I did it. I brought the sword down on his neck, the replica sword that had no sharpened edge. But the sheer weight of it against the flesh was enough to take Tao's head off. His broken spinal cord caused his body to fall limp on top of the girl, his half-head attached. His mouth continued to snap open and closed until I swung the second blow severing the head completely from the neck. I rolled his body away from the girl. She was unharmed and not even soiled. She ran off screaming and I closed the door behind her. And then I cried, alone and afraid. I cried for a long time. I waited, thinking that soon the police would be here and my ordeal would be over. I was relieved in a sense. I would now be in their hands. If they locked me up then, I couldn't hurt anyone else. But no one came and I couldn't keep myself awake. So I locked the apartment door from the inside and threw the key out the window. 
The next day, I awoke to what looked like a burglary. My apartment was trashed. Broken glass, upturned furniture, and blood on the walls. It was no burglary, though. It was me. The apartment door had been savagely clawed at and would probably not hold me for another night. My fingers were bloody and raw, but I felt no pain. I caught myself in the mirror again to see if I had pulled out most of my hair. There was hair stuck between my teeth. I must have been eating it. And there, in the middle of the floor, lay my beloved towel. In the moment of fear and sadness, I tried to end it. I grabbed a shard of glass and used it on myself. There was no pain and little liquid, as if all of it inside of me had dried up. Clinging to the large shard of glass with my bare hands, I used it on my own stomach. I coughed a bit of the tar-like substance, but otherwise, there was no real consequence. I was trapped in this monstrous body until I wasted away. Out of fear for myself and for the rest of humanity, I chained my neck with a bike lock to a sturdy radiator. I'm sure that if I break free, the apartment door won't hold for long. I've since come to regret my decision. I'm not sure how many days it's been, but Tao's body is now covered with small mushrooms. When they finally do find us, the infection will likely spread. I wish I had burned this place down. But instead, I'm stuck here with my phone and my boyfriend's a decaying body. Stay safe. I was part of a government operation to explore the back rooms. Written by Kyle Harrison. The following recordings are part of the Daedalus operation, a top-secret experiment taking place in Redacted, authorized by Redacted. Only authorized members may listen to these files. Zero four hundred hours. We've arrived at the testing site. The others seem pretty upbeat, but I don't share their feelings. This is not my first choice, hardly even my last one if I'm being honest. I was assigned here because I have had issues with authority, knocked to the bottom of the totem pole and given the most grueling of tasks, in the hopes that I will eventually resign or wind up ending myself. This assignment, my former commanding officer told me, was where good men went to die. Now don't be deceived into thinking that you're ready for what's happening here. You aren't, and you never will be. I took those words to heart as I passed through the triple layer of security and took a moment to calm my heart with a quick smoke. Not the best of habits, I know, but I had also been told that anything outside the quarantine zone wasn't going to be allowed in. All of my personal effects, the memories of my time serving the military, and even the picture of my girlfriend would be left behind. Not too late to tuck your tail and run, Kelly. That was my new boss, a nerfed merc named Roland Mathias. He was either Eastern European or Mediterranean, but he looked like he was the type that meant business and had probably seen twice as many battles as me. He was counting inventory as his soldiers set up a base camp, and his senior communications officer was explaining how we would be able to transmit anything from the other side once we went through. So, this is for real, I asked. Recalling the bizarre way the mission had been described when I had been told that I was headed to this godforsaken place. 
The file was thin, but claimed that the building we were now entering had experienced an incident relating to an experiment only about five months ago. Since that time, four teams had attempted to discern what had happened, and none had returned successfully. According to the last transmission, there were large fluctuations in radio waves and electromagnetism. It was a wall of noise, a glitch in the very fabric of our reality. The squad had come to call this zone as a liminal gate, as the only footage we had obtained from the other side showed drab corridors that went on forever, fluorescent lights that hardly provided any illumination at all, and a sense of emptiness that filled any who watched the media with a sense of dread. When I first saw the report, I had assumed it was some sort of sick joke or a confusion in the mission statement. But now as we prepared to barge into the abandoned building acting as though it were a battle zone, I realized that this was more dangerous than anyone had imagined. Get your suit on and be ready to move out in one hour, Matthias had told me. I took the time to call my girlfriend. She didn't even know about my reassignment and wasn't entirely sure how to explain it. Thankfully, I got only her voicemail, so I made it quick. Hey, it's me. I'm on the field again, just like you wanted. I'm about to head out, but I wanted to make sure you were doing okay. I know we haven't had much of a chance to talk, but I think that I would like to change that. Once this is over, maybe I can just come home. Heck, I wish I could now. I wish I could run into your arms. The message beeped and I cursed to myself, realizing that I didn't have enough time to say all the things that I wanted to say. I've made so many mistakes to wind up here. My superiors likely wanted me to enter this building and never return. I suited up and took a deep breath. It was time to prove them wrong. Zero five hundred hours. I told myself as Matthias finished getting the others ready that I would do my best to familiarize myself with the names of my fellow comrades. We were but a skeleton crew, meant to only investigate as much as possible and report back to HQ. But it was soon very clear that I wasn't the only one here who had been sent to be forgotten. Vincent Carter, the team's physician, said that he had been given the assignment after a botched surgery in Boston. Mr. Lang said that there were two sisters that needed my assistance, and I was on a holiday near Evergrove anyway. I tried to save them, but honestly, he had called me too late. They didn't like that, and given the fact that I had alcohol in my breath, well, I don't have to tell you what happened next. He said, gesturing aimlessly to the entrance of the abandoned building. I was focusing on the darkness and thinking back to the footage that I had seen, asking aloud to Commander Roland, Where does the power source come from? That is but one of the many questions that we hope to answer, he replied. Weatherby, an analyst that seemed close to Roland, was helping to set up a tethering system. All of us would be interconnected to one another via simple pulleys and ropes as though we were planning a spelunking expedition. It's easy to get lost in there. Make sure you don't lose sight of one another. Weatherby had advised me. An older soldier that looked like he should be already past retirement barred to complain as the analyst finished the hooks on the rope and gave me a gruff look. I immediately noticed that he had a long scar running along the left side of his face, along with a glass orb where his eye had once been. Got something to say, son? 
He asked as he put his automatic weapon over his shoulder. Commander Matthias told us to send out any messages to family or friends in the event that we don't return. I didn't see you doing that. I commented as we walked toward the darkness. Nobody out here left for me. Only the shadows are my comfort now, he said, spitting on the ground. I mean, surely there must be someone. He turned and jabbed a finger in my chest, angry that I was still pressing the issue. I said there was no one, and leave it at that. I belong here, the old man growled. I stood in place for a moment, confused by his words as Vincent explained. Marsh is the only one that volunteered, I don't know why. There are rumors, of course, but nothing solid. Anyway, we should head inside. I shook off the unease and nodded. Activating the light on my helmet and I followed the others inside. Matthias was nearing the east wall, setting up small rectangular boxes on at the edge of the concrete barrier. And then Weatherby was going to each one and checking to make sure that everything was secure. I suggest you cover your ears for this part, Roland said. I barely had time to listen as the strange resonating noise filled the empty building. And then I noticed as the noise got louder that the wall itself seemed to shimmer the way a body of water would, rippling and vibrating frantically as our commandant gave us the go-ahead. I hesitated, still unsure about any of this, but it wasn't like I had a choice. The others were already barreling toward the wall as if it wasn't there, and the rope would tug me forward anyway. I closed my eyes and ran as well, the shimmering wall looming ahead. I screamed as I thought I would collide with it, and then I did hit it, and all around me, reality seemed to glitch. Walls shifted and jolted in and out of existence, hardly there and as firm as bricks all at once. And then I fell to the ground in front of me. It was shag carpet, the kind that you might see in a hotel hallway. And as I opened my eyes, I saw that there was no need for night vision anymore. The dim, fluorescent lights revealed the long, widening corridors beyond. Immediately, my eyes darted about to find the others as I looked down at the robe. It was stretching forward down the hallway, but I couldn't see much further than perhaps 20 feet until it fell into complete darkness. Then I swiveled about, expecting to see Carter entering from the real world into the strange beyond from the fake wall. Instead, I saw the exact same endless corridors, and the rope that was tied to my body that connected to him was stretching on in that direction as well for 20 feet until the darkness had covered it up. Suddenly, I felt very unsure which way that I had arrived, or which way I should be going. The walls and ceilings all looked the same bland colors. There were no markings or anything to tell me which direction my companions had gone. So I tried to shout, my voice sounding hollow as it echoed down the hallway. There was no answer. I walked over to the nearest wall and took out a Swiss army knife from my pocket. I wrote an X on the wall to tell me where I was at. And then I turned to the left and tugged at the robe, calling to Carter and the others again. When silence answered back, I started to pull at the rope and then use it as a guide like Matthias had intended one step at a time in this strange dimension. 0700. I don't really know for sure how much time had passed since I had arrived, but it certainly feels like at least a few hours because I'm hungry already. 
I've been following the rope, calling to my fellow soldiers every hundred feet, and wondering if I will be alone forever, as I wander these empty, liminal spaces. I tell myself not to give up, but that is very hard when it feels like the odds are against me. I have somehow been going in circles, as I found the X that I marked on the wall at least 22 times, but it doesn't feel like I've turned around. The rope continues to stretch on infinitely. I decided to take a break and eat the first part of my rations, thinking perhaps if I stay out, somebody will find me. I am partially correct, but it is not someone, it is something. Oh, 8.30. I heard something in the distance, a low grumbling noise that made the hair in the back of my neck stand up. I knew that it couldn't be any animal that I was familiar with. It reminded me of an old video cassette recording, warped and beyond understanding, shrieking and scrambled. It was somewhere in front of me. The lights above my head flickered for a moment as the noise got louder, and I stood up keeping my hand on my rapid fire weapon and peering down the next endless corridor where the rope stretched to. I saw something in the shadows. It was distorted and scrawny and warped all at the same time. It had at least five appendages. A twisted neck, a head that looked larger than its body, a mouth on its abdomen and claws where its eyes should be at. It moved the way that a scorpion would, its long, messy piercers stabbing in the ground as it crawled, first on the floor and then to the walls and the ceiling. Every time that it made a noise, the entire corridor resonated with a vibrating ring of energy, and it was heading toward me. Immediately, I opened fire on the creature, a string of bullets flying from my weapon toward its open stomach. As it got hit, the fleshy tendrils of the legs and flailing arms widened and shook madly, absorbing each blow as if it were just striking at the air. And it was growing larger too, until the abscess on its head was too bulky to even hold its own weight, and it tumbled into the room alongside me. I panicked and cut the robe running back the way that I had come to the right and away from the path that I had been following. The halls kept stretching, on and on as I weaved and hid, trying to make a distance between myself and the monster. The screams vibrated and changed from being almost on top of me to being far away as I kept moving left to right and then down the corridors, wondering if I was even getting further away or not. It was difficult to be sure that there was any progress being made. And then I turned a corner and nearly ran straight into one of the others, Vincent. His eyes were wide with fear as he grabbed my shoulders and put his hands over my mouth to prevent any sound from being heard. We both hunkered down next to a wall as we heard the creature scream and thrash somewhere in a different corridor, both of us ready to run if necessary. Once the noises died down, I let out a visible sigh of relief and looked down at the robe. He had almost untethered, meaning the chances of us being able to meet with the others was even less likely now. Have you seen anyone else? Carter asked. I shook my head no and he pointed to the right. Come on, there's something that you need to see, he said. 1020. I'm not entirely sure if the measurement of time means much anymore, but I've been trying my best to keep track of our journey here. Carter seemed to know where he was going, following scratches in the wall to the east as he kept his weapon steady and we kept moving. 
Every so often we would freeze, hide and listen to the strange monster as it shambled past us, but never would get close. It made me wonder if perhaps the creature itself was also lost here, the same as us. Soon I was beginning to wonder if these markings were ever going to lead anywhere when I saw what looked like a door and I nearly laughed in astonishment. Running toward it, I unlatched the handle and found myself staring at what resembled a fire escape of some kind, with stairs that seemed to go on infinitely forever above and below us. Carter reached into his pack and took out a small empty water bottle, tossing it to the stairwell below. We didn't hear it at the bottom, only seeing it vanish into the bottomless pit. I was about to go explain this passage when that thing started to hunt me. Carter had explained. How far down do you suppose this goes? I asked, checking my rations. I had enough for at least four more hours, but that didn't count for water supply. We need to find the others soon, I told him. Carter didn't respond instead, using the weapon on his left shoulder to aim toward the darkness and try and judge how far down we would be going. You think it goes all the way down there? He asked as he fired a random bullet into the air. We watched as it flew up and out of sight and I shook my head as we climbed down. I'd say they were already there. 1200 hours. We stopped for a break and I offer what little water that I have left to share with Carter as we slide down and I stretch my legs. The stairs are endless, I just leave the corridor that we came from, and I'm beginning to get the feeling that we may never leave. It makes my throat feel dry and my legs are numb to the reality that i likely die here just as it was intended. Marsh would know what to do. Did I ever tell you why he volunteered? He whispered. Uh, to fight the good fight, I guessed. Carter laughed and tossed his empty food can into the pit. He claimed that he was searching for something, like he had been here before. It didn't make sense, but he definitely seemed to know what he was doing. Wish he had been the commanding officer instead of Matthias. There must be some rhyme and reason to this labyrinth. I was about to reply when I heard something and I looked up above. It sounded like a scream. What is it? Carter asked. A second later, a body fell right past me and I fumbled back against the wall. A moment later, we heard a loud thud. Getting to our feet, we ran down about five more floors of stairs to see that. The analyst that had been hired to keep us alive was now the first victim of the maze. I looked above us into the infinite stairwell. Do you think it was that thing, and it's following us? I asked. I don't know, but look. Carter said as he pointed his weapon toward the corridor to the left. This one was narrow and cramped, leading to a second door which had marked on it, a word that looked like it was a Latin or something. Theseus. Vincent whispered as he opened the door and we stepped into what looked like a control room of some kind. There were monitors everywhere, at least a hundred of them, perhaps more. Viewing all of the different corridors and corners and floors of this interdimensional maze, and near the center, I saw another impossible monstrosity. This one had to be at least 20 feet tall, judging from the angle of the camera, and it was chained down on all sides, so it was difficult to be sure how large it was at its full height. It looked like a mad science experiment gone wrong, with the flesh twisted and peeled back all over its body. A mesh between a beast of the field and a man's lower torso. 
Its head was shaped like that of a bull with two bony cracked horns curving towards the lighting fixtures as its cold and dead hazel eyes appeared toward the camera. It was looking toward us as if aware of its captivity, thinking of its escape. This is why this place was built, Vincent commented, his voice hardly a whisper as we checked the other cameras. There were more creatures that I couldn't describe properly on other floors, roaming freely and hunting for food, or perhaps just hunting to kill. It occurred to me in these endless corridors it was likely that nothing would be available for resources, so the only thing keeping these beasts going was sheer rage, and perhaps a means of energy, like the lights, I thought as I looked away from the monitors. I thought that Commander Roland told us this place was from another reality, a step into an alien world. Why does all this look like we're the ones that made it? I asked, gesturing randomly toward the equipment. Because this is a containment facility, a voice said from the right side of the control room. It was the old man, Marsh. He was coming in, dragging the body of Weatherby alongside him. As I've tried to explain to the others so many times, these are wild, genetic creations that have no idea what they are or where they belong in the circle of life. This constant agony of nothingness that confines them here will only feed their anger and make them harder to control. He said as he shut down the systems one by one. I don't understand why our organization is doing this, I said. Marsh laughed. Yes, you do. Weaponizing these dimensional creatures and modifying them to be our slaves would change the face of war forever. When they created this liminal space, it was meant for only one monster. That horrid minotaur you saw chained in the core. But the experiments have spread like cancer and it's gotten out of control. They will never admit it. But these things it can't be contained here forever. The maze is going to eventually implode. I have seen what it can do firsthand. He passed me a picture of a younger woman who I guessed was his daughter and I complimented him saying, I take it that she was brought here and that's why you come. They've turned this prison into a sacrificial pit. It's the only way to keep the creatures satisfied. They wander and moan and consume everything in the maze. And people like us. People cast aside like her. We are the bait. We are consumed by their greed. And then, as a result, the maze grows. My hands began to tremble as I passed the picture back to him, realizing what he was implying. I was told before I came here that I was sent here to die. I thought that was only a wild exaggeration, but it really was a mission statement. They can't let these things loose in the real world, I whispered. And they can't kill them. Maintaining the maze and discovering what we can about them is the safest choice, but it comes with a cost. Feeding these bees it takes a lot of lives. More and more are losing theirs for what is ultimately a forgotten cause, I realized. And it will never be enough, Vincent decided. Listen to yourself. We can't just go home either. We don't even know how. We need to find a way to kill these things. Marge, you said the prison could collapse. Can we do that and eliminate the threats inside? I asked the old man. 
He rubbed his beard thoughtfully as we marched out of the control room, and he nodded, saying, It'll take a little bit of time to get in position. There's a way I've been there before, but I won't be doing anything until I find my daughter. I nodded, checking what little equipment we had left. Then we should move together from now on, I said. 1600 hours. I don't think I should log the time anymore as it's become a constant threat to my sanity. I know we have been longer than I am recording, yet the markers from my journal keep me tethered to what I once understood as reality. The endless blank hallways have stretched out on and on, as Vincent and Marsh and I keep searching for the last survivor of our group, our commanding officer, along with the daughter that he lost that I doubt is even alive. I say that because of the creatures that we have seen here in this place, and Marsh has become more and more lost as time goes on. His earlier ramblings about knowing a way to stop these monsters seems like a faint memory now as I pull Carter to the side and mutter, How long are we going to let this old man keep us wandering? We have no idea what part of this dimensional prison we're in. Carter's eyes were bloodshot and his lips were dry, another reminder that we were out of time. We had no resources left and our energy was as scarce at best. Maybe we can find a way back to that command center. Find an exit, he asked, coming to terms with the fact that our search for Roland seemed useless. Before I could speak, I heard Marsh holler for us. It was a cry of distress. Despite our misgivings about the man, we dashed to where he was at in another large empty chamber, and as soon as I saw what had made him scream, I felt numb. Roland, or what was left of him, was on display in the center of the room. His body spliced apart every which way you could imagine. It was held together by what looked like long black chains. Suddenly, I realized where we were. This was the center of the maze where earlier we had seen the strange, bull-like beast. The Minotaur, as Marsh had called it. But his story was now falling apart. He had claimed this was another mad experiment that had failed, and that was what we had seen. Yet now, we were viewing it for ourselves and all I saw was a broken man. And yet his organs still seemed to have life in them, as a strange energy pulsed amid the chains. We are the experiment, fed into the machine to face these beasts and then eventually become them, I realized. I heard shrieks coming from the nearby corridors and realized that the beasts that we had been chased by earlier were likely coming here soon to harvest what was left of Roland. Marsh fell to his knees, defeated and frustrated, as he screamed and punched the soaked floor. I knew that he was thinking of the daughter he had sacrificed everything for. And then I turned to Vincent, who was cocking his gun and aiming it at his own mouth tears streaming down his face. This isn't how I want it to end. I'd rather be dead than used for this freak show, he whispered. I screamed for him to stop, but it was too late. The echoes of the bullet smashing through his head alerted the creatures to my location, and I tugged at Marsh, urging him to stand. Go on without me. My children want me here, he insisted as he pushed me away. I didn't have time to argue, as the different shambling bees were already in the core. So I ran to the left and I didn't look back. 
time unknown. How long has it been since then and I've somehow survived? Perhaps it's been a few days or a few months. I wait for others to arrive as I wander this place, forced to feed off the men that are left behind and use their carcasses as shelter and security. The creatures are beginning to treat me as part of the maze and giving me my own territory, a back room of sorts that I can wander and scribble on the walls whatever I wish. This is where I have begun to write warnings in my own experience of my time here. Using the long fingernails and rudimentary bones that I have left for my grotesque meals, to which I can remind myself of how I once was human too. I think I walk like a man, but I can no longer claim to understand the world beyond the maze. Here, thanks to the endless cycle of time, I can become a god. This is likely what the experiment was meant for anyway. And although the creatures I have seen are bizarre, I have also seen how beautiful they can be. How can something so amazing and full of life be a nightmare? I returned to the command center and saw Marsh on the cameras not long ago, wandering a different part of the maze. His skin is all but gone now and he walks like a shadow with a lamp. He continues to search for something that is long gone, or perhaps it may not even be here. Or, as I've begun to lose track of time, I've understood that there is no rhyme or reason to the flow of events here. We are simply here. The present is always and the past is always, and the future is always. I found the place where Marsh claimed this place could be open to the rest of the world. I walk by it often to see who's there. Sometimes I think of escape but I doubt the world would recognize me for what I am now. The other day, I saw a woman, a girl. She seems familiar. A distant memory from the life I could have had. I killed her instantly and used her bone marrow to restore my own energy. Her eyes were dead and accusing, but I think she would agree it was better for her to end it here on the threshold than become a part of the labyrinth. I think she might have been connected to me, or perhaps to the old man. He is part of the maze now, his body meshing with the wall then being absorbed. The same will happen to me. I do not know if I'll return to the world beyond, although the way is open to me. I do not think anything is there for me waiting. I do not think I belong there as I have lost my own sanity. I will wander these corridors stripped of any memory of what was once human and be the maze itself. Eventually, I will die and my body absorbed and the cycle repeat. Until one day, our world meets with the wand beyond these walls. End recording. File under Daedalus Test Subject Number 13. Mission considered a success minus the casualty of one Lucia Marge. Continue process of creating new mutations. Begin plans for next mission by end of month. Mission Statement. To expand perimeters of dimensional gateways to explore further details of the new dimension and determine the flow of time within. My friends and I discovered a hidden wildlife sanctuary. The animals here are unusual. Written by A.J. Crowley
I'm currently 18 years old, finishing up my senior year of high school. Throughout grade school, many friends came and went, but only four are important for the story. I won't use the real names. There was Johnny, a 19-year-old who had yet to start college, said something about getting his stuff together before he went away, whatever that meant. He was never one to have his life all squared away nicely, if you get what I mean. Still a very nice guy, though. Would proudly jump in front of a bullet for any one of us. Julia, also 19 but already in college. She was visiting home for the summer. She was a bright, happy soul and her smile made the rest of us smile. Especially Johnny. I suspect that he had a slight crush on her. I wish he got the chance to tell her how he really felt. They would have made a good couple. And she could definitely have helped him with his troubles at home. Her brother Edmund, or Ed, was 16, and the youngest of us all. He would occasionally talk under his breath, and you would have to repeat yourself to get his attention. He loved the outdoors, but was a bit of a neat freak, always bringing hand sanitizer and bear spray with him whenever we went romping about in the woods, despite the fact that no bears had been seen in our town for over five years. Lastly, there was Teddy, a high-wired, nerdy, 17-year-old with orange, curly hair, like Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. He was tall and lanky, and back when creepypastas were a big thing on the internet, we convinced him to dress up as Slenderman for Halloween one year. Gotta admit, it was a pretty scary costume. He actually pranked us with it a couple of times while all those fake Slenderman sighting videos and short films were floating around and he had everyone convinced the thing was actually real. I remember vividly how he had snuck into my house one morning with the costume and stood at the foot of my bed until I woke up. I think I screamed so loud that the neighbors down the street even heard it. But Teddy's favorite interest was biology, specifically paleontology. He would always try to tell us about the coolest new prehistoric species or dinosaur that had been discovered recently. The others humored it, especially Ed who seemed greatly interested in the subject as well. I never shared the enthusiasm though. I don't know. Maybe it's just a me thing, but I didn't really want to hear about the brand new Super Ceratops or Ceratospinus or whatever crazy names he would ramble on about. As I mentioned earlier, one of our favorite activities was running around the woods. We live in a fairly populated suburb of western North Carolina. Despite that, our town bordered the Appalachian Mountain Range, and the town was surrounded by massive expanses of forest and open prairie, some of it practically unexplored. There were some patches of land that were labeled private property and no trespassers allowed, but nobody really knew who owned the land. Apparently it was a dangerous place, and the people who went there sometimes didn't return. A big urban legend about a creature called the Fleshgate, an animalistic monster that could take the form of a man after consuming his remains. It was essentially our town's boogeyman, a tall tale used to scare kids into eating their vegetables and following their curfew lest the monster snatched them up and turned them into child stew. I won't lie, it scared the bejesus out of me when I was that age, until I grew up and I researched it, learning it was basically a rip-off of the more well-known Native American skinwalker story. 
so of course, there was no monster. But the real reason for the private land and the unexplained disappearances remained a mystery. Well, one day, in the early morning sun of June, me and my little crew set out on another expedition into the woods. It was to be an exciting adventure. We would follow a small creek farther than we ever had before, mapping out whatever we found at its end. We would look for unique landmarks, good trees to climb into any site, sounder smell of wild animals. We had seen deer, fox, coyote, skunk, possum, and raccoon all in these surrounding woods. But we wanted to find something big, something extraordinary, a bear, a moose, a mountain lion, a wolf. We even teased about finding the legendary flesh gate, maybe tracking it to its lair and using rock clubs and spears to hunt the beast down and make the forest safe for all the children. We began our journey at dawn, for that was the best time to spot animals. It was right before the nighttime critters were ready to retire to their dens, and right when the other inhabitants of the forest were starting the day shift. The creek, which Johnny had given a cliché name, Creek of John, since he had discovered it, ran for a long while, winding through the trees, past peaceful meadows, down rocky waterfalls. But where it ended, we did not know. That was what we had intended to find out today. We followed the stream down its usual route, under the large oak trees that shaded us from the sun, past the peaceful meadows where the rabbits played and cuddled, and down the precarious waterfalls where the middles and frogs sat at the bottom, ready to gobble up any insects that fell in. And we went further and further. We followed the stream for a good 45 minutes, and eventually we did find its end. The path up ahead was obscured by a small hill, no way the stream was making it over that. Johnny, Julia, and Edmund were thrilled. Teddy was happy but clearly exhausted. We had gone much further than initially anticipated. We rushed down to the bottom of the hill, but the sight that met us left us truly puzzled. The water trickled into a medium-sized pool, but it was not the only thing filling it. There was a pipe sticking out from the side of the hill. It looked like it had been deliberately placed there to empty water from an unknown source. What the heck is this? Julia asked. Maybe it's connected to the town's reservoir. Teddy pondered. I don't know, but that's some freaky looking stuff right there. Was all that Johnny could get out before Julia punched him in the arm. Ow, what was that for? She gestured over to Edmund, and immediately Johnny understood. Edmund got really uncomfortable when people sweared, and we never knew exactly why. But Julia said her grandparents weren't exactly the kindest to him, and it only worsened what they had learned of his conditions. I found it shocking that an elder could be mean like that, especially to a kid. Look, I'm sorry, all right, Johnny continued, raising his hand up defensively. But seriously, look at that. Tell me it doesn't look like something straight out of Cabin in the Woods. What? You think the flesh gate put it there? Asked Julia with a smug look on her face. Of course not, exclaimed Johnny. That's just a kid's story. Suddenly, as if on a horror movie cue, there was a rustling in the bushes to our left. We all looked over until it meant Johnny looked genuinely frightened, like he was starting to doubt his previous statement. A bizarre growling sound emanated from the bush, 
and we could see that a quadrupedal figure slowly emerged. I sucked in my breath as I came face to face with a fox. We all sighed in relief as the curious canine eyed us. It turned and trotted away into the forest after a few moments of silent staring. We then resumed our confusion over the random pipe in the middle of a forest. Teddy had the idea to check if it was connected to anything, so we got down on our hands and knees and began digging. Sure enough, another pipe emerged from the side of the hill in a few minutes. Teddy put his ear to it and listened. We sat there in anticipation, waiting for him to describe what he was hearing. It was not what we had expected. This isn't empty in water, he said. It's carrying water somewhere else. What? I said. That's not possible. It's empty and right over there, look. I pointed to the small pool and the draining pipe. No, that's got to be a different pipe then, Teddy said. This one's connected to somewhere else. I was about to retort when Ed had interrupted me, speaking for the first time since we had found the pipe. You guys, he said. You see that up there? He was pointing at the top of the hill. When we all looked, we saw nearly all the trees had private property signs. One even had a warning label, like going further was dangerous. Dang, I said. How did we not see that before? Though I already knew the answer. Ed had a knack for noticing things before everyone else, even as a little boy. I guess he's very attentive to his surroundings. You guys, I think we should turn back, Johnny suddenly said. I really don't think we should be going and sticking our noses where they don't belong, especially if this place belongs to someone else. Are you kidding? Julia suddenly yelled. This is the chance of a lifetime. We finally have a real mystery to solve. Yeah, easy for you to say. You've never been in trouble with the law before. What's that supposed to mean? Are you hiding stuff from us? What? No. It was just one speeding ticket. Hey, both of you, cool it, Teddy yelled. You're acting like a bunch of crazies. And Teddy's right, I added. We aren't going to get anywhere arguing like this. We should probably leave. I agreed with Johnny. If this place is private property, I really don't want to get us all dragged into a legal mess. Especially since my folks are. I was cut off by a scream. Not a human scream, but a fox's distressed yelp. It sounded like something was attacking it. The sound suddenly drew closer, turning into frantic alarm barks. I had heard this sound only once before, when a fox, being chased by a coyote, ran into my backyard and hid under my dad's shed. The fox in that scenario got away, but this one seemed in a much worse predicament. We all looked to the top of the hill and saw the same fox from earlier running down it. It had a bloody wound on its side, and it was moving as fast as it could. It ran down the hill, past the pool that we were standing next to, and into a small field of tall sedge grass. That's when we first saw it. One of them. A dark shadow suddenly appeared in the field. It was the size of a Labrador and from its outline seemed to walk on two legs but with the straightforward posture of a bird. It also had a long tail with some kind of fluff hanging off the end of it. 
It ran after the fox faster than any animal I had ever seen, yet its movements were almost completely silent. It was as if this thing had an aura of quietness around it. It suddenly leaped into the air and came down upon the fox. A brief struggle ensued as the two creatures tumbled through the field and out of view. A small cloud of dust arose, and we could hear the fox desperately screaming. It was clearly caught in the predator's talons and fighting for its life. The screams were suddenly cut off though, and we heard a sharp yet silent snap, the sound of the fox's neck being broken. It was over in a heartbeat, and silence once again filled the field, as if the shadowy creature had never been there in the first place. Yet it still was. We could hear its faint panting as it caught its breath. My mouth hung open as my mind tried to process what the heck I just saw. It didn't seem real, and yet it very much was. I looked over to my friends to see an equally shocked expression on each of their faces. Teddy, the one who had an answer to everything via math and science, looked purely and utterly dumbfounded. Ed looked like he was doubting his own eyes, much like me. Julia actually gagged a few times and looked like she was going to hurl. She never was a fan of seeing animals do that whole circle of life stuff. Not on TV and definitely not in person. Poor Johnny looked like he was scarred for life though. His lips were trembling and his eyes watered like he was on the verge of tears. He was the first to speak and he said the one thing nobody wanted him to say in that moment. <laughs> Fleshgate. And that made my heart drop. And I'm sure that it did the others. I didn't think for certain that it actually was the Fleshgate. But just the thought made me shiver. I could already see Julia and Ed taking a few nervous steps back. Ed spoke up next in a hushed, scared voice. Uh, let's, let's just leave, guys. I was going to say something likely, and I agree, before booking it the heck out of there and never returning. But then Teddy did something that caught all of us off guard. He ran up the hill right toward the sedge field. Johnny tried to grab a hold of him, but he missed. Julia shouted out a desperate, Teddy, wait! And poor Ed looked like he was going to pass out. We tore up the hill after him. But the kid must have been real motivated because he had outpaced all of us. Even Julia, the gold medal track runner. He made it over the crest of the hill and out of sight. All the while we shouted his name. Horrible images ran through my mind. The flesh gate waiting for us at the top of the hill. Assuming the form of Teddy after disemboweling him. Or maybe an FBI truck with loads of armed men, ready to take us down for exposing their hidden alien experiments. All we found though was Teddy standing motionless, staring off at the bottom of the hill. Johnny caught up with him first. I swear for that I ought to kick your... But he stopped, his own gaze following Teddy's. Me, Julia, and Ed caught up to them next. What are you two looking at? But my words once again left me at the sight of something that I'll never forget for as long as I live. At the edge of the grassy clearing stood a strange animal. It was hunched over the fox, stripping a long piece of meat from the body. It wasn't a violent display, but a delicate and refined one, like an eagle eating a fish. 
It used its rather long arms to help it scoop up the food, and I could see at least three fingers tipped with small claws. The animal was indeed bipedal, but its legs were anything but human-like. Its knees were high up and so were the ankles. I couldn't see the feet at first. What I did see, though, was how long the thing was. It had a massive tail that had extended behind it, stiff and unmoving like a board. Altogether, it must have been at least nine feet long. The most peculiar thing about this animal, though, was the fact that it was covered, practically head to toe in feathers. Its entire upper body had dark feathers, ranging in shade from black to gray to brown. The tail and arms both had longer feathers extending from them, looking like fancy wings. The underside had much lighter feathers, and they were also a bit shorter. It looked to be a bit yellowish on the belly. Its head was partially obscured by a bush, so I couldn't fully see its face, but it seemed to also be feathered, at least partially. I had never even heard of a creature like this before. What on earth was it? The flesh gate? Not a chance. This thing was much too elegant to be the awful, disfigured monster described in campfire tales. Some kind of undiscovered exotic bird. Maybe the truly bizarre plumage would make sense in that case. But what's an exotic bird doing in North Carolina? And Teddy had the answer before all of us, though. Only problem was that he was stupid enough to say it out loud when we were in earshot of it. No effing way, that's a... Julius slapped a hand over his mouth, but it was already too late. The creature immediately stopped eating, its head slightly perking up. I heard a strange chirping and a hooting noise, like a bird or an owl but deeper in pitch. And then, in a surprisingly fast motion, the animal shot out of the brush and now stood only ten feet from us. It didn't attack, just stared at us with apparent curiosity. With its body full in view, I noticed details that I had missed before. Firstly, its face. The face resembled an eagle or a hawk, but instead of a beak, there was a long, scaly snout like a Komodo dragon. The eyes were orange with big pupils, also like a bird. It looked at us inquisitively with those eyes, and I felt like I saw intelligence in them. It was kind of scary, but its face made it look kind of cute. That's the best way that I can describe it at least. The only thing not very cute was the blood dripping from its lips and finger claws. It also had two orange streaks above its eyes, looking almost like fiery eyebrows. Now I could finally see its feet. They looked almost exactly like hawk's talons, but one claw, the front one, was much bigger than the others. I mean, they were huge. It reminded me of the claws of the... Wait, you gotta be kidding me. The realization hit me like a brick and I could only stare in complete awe and utter confusion as Julia whispered to Ted, What did you say this thing was again? He whispered, his voice shaking, It's a dinosaur. I finished his sentence for him. A dinosaur. We were looking at a freaking dinosaur. It was impossible. It made no sense at all and yet it was standing right in front of us. A living, breathing dinosaur. An actual one. Edmund actually fainted, and Johnny and Julia looked not far behind. What? uttered Johnny, 
There's no way that's impossible. It's got to be an overgrown peacock or something. I have no idea how, replied Teddy, but there's no mistaking that body shape or those claws. I could tell that his shock was wearing off, quickly being replaced by nerdy excitement. I mean, that's the one defining trait of it. Ah, Teddy, cut the bull, suddenly interrupted Julia. That's not a dinosaur, it's a big bird. Since when do dinosaurs have feathers? Haven't you watched any movies? They're just big lizards. Stop trying to freak us out and tell us what this actually is. She was fuming, looking almost ready to chew Teddy's head right off. I was honestly more scared of her in that moment than the creature cautiously eyeing us mere feet away. And Teddy wasn't intimidated, which is funny in retrospect, as he's probably the most cowardly of us all. And that's because your childhood lied to you, he said matter-of-factly. And then without another word, he whipped out his phone and typed something faster than I could imagine possible. Within practically the blink of an eye, he was showing both of us an image. This is what a raptor actually looks like, not those scaly movie monsters from Jurassic Park. The image showed a large feathered animal with a scaly muzzle. It was practically identical to the creature in front of us, except the colors were different. He scrolled down, showing more and more pictures. They all lined up, and they all had the name under them. Julia knew that she was defeated, but still she couldn't believe it. I could hardly believe it myself, and I wouldn't call myself a massive skeptic unlike Julia. But uh, how, why, it doesn't make sense. Tell us something we don't know, I said with a sarcastic tone. Apparently, she took offense to that. She looked over at me angrily and was about to say something else when a low chirp made us turn. Guess we had somehow forgotten about the dinosaur a coin toss away. The animal had begun approaching us, its head tilting almost like a dog's. It kept its curious yet cautious attitude as it took one delicate step towards us at a time. It approached Johnny first. We all held our breath as it slowly walked up to him, sniffed at his shirt and poked his hand with its snout. I had never seen a man look so ready to crap his pants as Johnny did for those few seconds of contact. He looked white as a ghost, as if all the blood had just vanished from the blood vessels in his face. But the dinosaur didn't attack. Instead, it lowered its gaze and began sneaking towards something else. It was heading for Ad, still fainted in the grass, and Julia began looking around for something to protect her brother. She reached down, grabbed a stick, and was about to raise it over her head and charged like a caveman attacking a saber-toothed tiger, but was stopped by Teddy. What the heck are you doing? She hissed through clenched teeth. Attacking it might just piss it off, and besides, Ed's actually in a perfect position. Animals generally won't attack something if they think it's dead. He whisper yelled back at her. That was true, actually. I remember reading in a book that the best way to survive a grizzly bear attack was to play dead. But how did he know if that trick would work on a raptor? The animal was now standing over Ed's limp body. Matt lowered its snout to sniff at his shirt, and then his hands, just like it had done with Johnny, 
and then he began sniffing Ed's face. That's when Ed woke up, and he screamed. The scream was so loud and guttural, I actually had to cover my ears for a brief second. I turned away, fully expecting the next sound to be Ed getting disemboweled, but that sound never came, and I quickly looked back over to see the creature had jumped off Tad, apparently frightened by the noise. It then did something weird. It fanned out its wing feathers and began shaking them while hissing. Its mouth opened to reveal the row of small yet very sharp looking teeth, caked with fox blood. No way, a threat display. Teddy yelled with apparent happiness. Amazing. I knew this behavior was found in modern day owls and other birds of prey, but he didn't finish his sentence as the dinosaur suddenly turned and ran away from us. It darted into the bush, paused a moment to grab the fox's body in its jaws, and then moved like a cheetah right into the thicket of brush and brambles. It was gone just like that. Julia helped Edmund up and he seemed thankful to be alive after that encounter. It didn't get any of me, did it? Nope, said Julia with a slight giggle. I do believe you're fully intact. All limbs and digits accounted for her. My mind was still racing from the pure and utter impossibility of it all, but I quickly realized what we needed to do. Come on guys, let's go home. Everyone turned to me with either confused or annoyed looks. And what exactly are we going home for? Said Teddy. We just made the scientific find of the century. We have to follow it, see if there are any more of it. And of course we have to take pictures, or else who's going to believe us? I'll tell y'all something. This is going to make us all richer then. No, forget it, dude. I snapped at him. What does it matter? Obviously something shady is going on around here. What do you think those signs are up there for? I gestured to the trees. And what of those people who went missing after poking around the trespassing zone? What, you think they got eaten? Yeah, that or they were taken away by the government because they saw something they weren't supposed to see. Face it, Teddy, we're not meant for this. Whatever secrets are out here aren't for us to find. And trying to find it would probably get us all killed. Let's just go back home and swear to never speak of this day. They were silent for a minute after my speech until Ed had walked to my side. I agree with them. I mean, there's probably nothing but trouble out there. Something terrible could happen to us. Teddy looked like he wanted to say something, anything, but he knew that his argument was finished. I guess that settles it then. Alright, let's go. You can shove that quitter attitude right up your hairy bomb, said Johnny suddenly. Did you just not see the most amazing stuff of your life? Something that you'll remember on your deathbed? Well, I know I did. And there's no way I'm going to let curiosity eat away at me until the bitter end. I don't know about any of you, but I gotta know what's going on there, even if I get locked up again. What do you mean again? I started before Julia interjected. Can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I agree with Johnny. Her cheerful attitude had returned, and apparently the skeptic side no longer existed. This is what we were searching for, right? Something big, something scary, something that nobody's ever seen. And who on earth besides Sam Neill and Chris Pratt 
can say they've seen a living, breathing rapture up close. We gotta solve this mystery. They gathered on one side of the field, while me and Ed stood on another. Three on two, and we were outnumbered. I weighed my options, and then finally realized what I had to do. With a heavy sigh, I admitted defeat. Alright, alright, we'll do this. But we gotta make sure to stick together. And if anything, I mean anything bad happens, we run away and never look back. Got it? Got it. The three newfound dino hunters shouted and sank. You're really doing this? I mean, what if there's more of them out there? Said in an exasperated Edmund. I'm sure there's something out there. Not too fond of seeing it, but I can't let them go by themselves. If I left them here, they may never come back. And I'd blame myself for the rest of my life. Ed mumbled something that I couldn't hear. What? Ed, speak up. I suppose that's true, I was saying. I mean, I can't bring myself to leave Julia out here. Now you get how I feel, I replied, and then took a deep breath. Well, let's get going before the second thoughts kick in. Alright, so we can't follow the dinosaur because the path it took is blocked by thorns, explained Teddy. However, we could go back to the pipe and see where that leads. So we tracked back down the hill to the area that we had dug up the pipe. Teddy listened again to determine which way the water was flowing. Then he pointed us in that direction. They led up the hill past the no trespassing signs. I knew this was the point of no return. We hiked through the wilderness, past trees and grasses and rolling hills, with no evidence that we were in some kind of top secret area. Eventually, a clearing became visible to us in the distance. As we got closer, we could hear the sounds of water below us. The pipe was running right toward that clearing. We picked up the pace, thinking that we were onto something, and oh boy were we. We emerged into the clearing and were greeted by a large building, about three stories high. However, it wasn't actually a building but instead a 35-foot-tall cage. Julia finished my train of thought for me. The cage was shaped like a dome, and we can see the inside. It looked to be the habitat for some sort of animal, with trees and a tall rock spire that looked artificial. We could see a river running through it, but the river had no apparent entry or exit point. It just kind of appeared into the cage. Look, the pipe. Johnny suddenly pointed. Sure enough, the pipe was attached to the side of the cage, emptying water to fill up the stream. So it was an animal habitat. But there was still one unanswered question, and it was easily the most important. What do you suppose lives in there? I asked. The raptor? Maybe, answered Teddy. It doesn't really look like a habitat for a terrestrial animal, though. More like a Hawkeye. An unfamiliar voice made us all jump practically out of our skin. I looked to our right and at the edge of the cage I could see two people approaching. One was a man and the other was a young woman. Considering the voice that we heard was female, I assumed it was her who had shouted. The man screamed next. Hawkeye, come on girl. They were headed right for us. We had to act quick before they noticed us. 
and that's when Johnny started running towards the cage. I was going to object, but those two people were practically on top of us and we had nowhere else to hide. We lugged it for the side of the cage and then carefully helped one another squeeze through the bars. We ducked down as low as the people finally reached the spot that we were previously standing at and listened as they began talking. Man, this is taking forever, the man said while panting. If we don't find that stupid bird soon, the boss is going to have our heads. Oh, calm down, Elliot, said the woman. I know Hawkeye like the back of my hand. She wouldn't have gone far. Well, if you know that much, maybe you'd figure out that they can climb trees, said a clearly annoyed Elliot, and use that to escape their pen. Well, I'm sorry, all right. Maybe I don't know everything about Deinonychus, but that's why this place exists, isn't it? Deinonychus, I whispered under my breath. You don't suppose this Hawkeye is the one we saw? Asked Eddie. Before I could reply, Elliot spoke up again. Alright, you go look that way. I'll head back to the trail. He gestured in the direction that we had come from. No matter what, we can't let that thing make it to town. If the world knew what we were doing here. Oh Jesus, stop overreacting, said the woman. We've dealt with far worse incidents than this. Yeah, I guess that's true, stammered out Elliot. Alright, let's get moving in quick. He ran back around the cage and the woman began running back the way we came yelling Hawkeye's name. We heard the sound of an engine of some sort being started from behind us, but a small building attached to the side of the cage blocked our view. We heard something driving off. I sat back inside out of relief and stress. That was way too close. And who were those two people? Workers and government officials. The mystery of this place was only deepening. Man, that was a close shave there, huh? I joked with the group. Silence. Uh, guys, I said looking over. They were all looking up, their faces filled with awe. I heard Johnny utter, My God, under his breath. What are y'all looking at? I looked up. Wings, big ones. Dozens of pairs of massive wings were sweeping all around us in the cage. I had to do a double take before I could finally comprehend what I was seeing, and when I realized it, I shouted it out. Pterosaurs! There were a ton of them, diving down and swooping back up. There were big ones with long beaks and massive, colorful crests adorning their heads, and smaller ones with shorter, sharper wings and toothy snouts in place of beaks. They were all covered in some sort of furry material, not exactly feathers, but not exactly hair either. Of course, Teddy knew each one. Pterodon, Ramphorhynchus, that's a Dimorphodon, and a Pterodactyl in no way, a Geosternbergia. He routed with glee as a truly giant flyer with the biggest and most vibrant crest in the whole flock passed by us. It must have had a 15-foot wingspan at the minimum. I found myself impressed that such a massive thing could even fly at all. They're so beautiful. I looked over to see Ed actually had tears in his eyes while watching the magnificent display above us. A sudden whoosh of wind came from our left. I looked over to see one of the airborne reptiles had landed on a small ledge next to us. Teddy, which one is that? I asked excitedly. A pteranodon longiceps. 
you can tell by the tall crest. He was right about that. A tall, horn-like structure jutted off from the top of its noggin and it pointed skyward. It was brilliantly colored with shades of pink lined with black stripes, contrasting the rest of its body, which was white with a few black markings, with a black beak that had an orange spot on either side where the nostrils were. The eyes were small and beady yet shone a brilliant ice blue. Julia stood close to the pterosaur and that seemingly gave her an idea. She began carefully navigating across the rocks that we stood on to get a closer look. Sis, wait, exclaimed Dad. I wouldn't do that if I were you, added Teddy. We have no idea how these animals view people. They could get hostile. Yeah, Julia, that seems like a bad idea, I said. She looked over at us and smiled. I think she knew that it would help calm us down. Oh, relax, boys. I didn't win a gold medal on track for nothing. She said before continuing on, I wanted to ask her what track had to do with befriending a prehistoric reptile, but it was too late. She now stood right beside the creature. It looked at her yet and made no sound, a sound from the light clacking of its beak as it breathed. She got as close as she could, and then extended hand toward its face. I held my breath, fully expecting a little stunt to go terribly wrong, but to my surprise... The pterosaur didn't freak out or attack. Instead, it actually nuzzled her hand with its face like it was enjoying the attention. She laughed and called it cute, and soon that got all of us laughing. It was a nice, happy scene for a few seconds. You could take a photo of it and it would look like something out of Jurassic World. You know, before the whole park went to crap. But that was when disaster struck. As Julia turned to head back towards us, she slipped on a loose rock and came dangerously close to falling. She yelped in surprise and stuck out her hands to find anything to grab onto. Unfortunately, the only thing within arm's reach was the pteranodon's beak. She grabbed it and nearly pulled the animal down with her. However, it quickly regained its footing and began struggling against her grasp. Ed and Johnny ran over and took her by her other hand, pulling her out of arm's way. She let go of the beak, but clearly, the animal was spooked and agitated. It spread its huge wings and took to the sky. It began to shriek loudly, a sound almost as ear-piercingly unpleasant as a fork being dragged over a plate. And we covered our ears, but it quickly got much worse. Another pterosaur shrieked and then another. Soon, the entire flock was screaming. They all took to the skies and flew in a flurry around us. It was like a tornado come to life. They began dive-bombing us, pecking at our arms and legs and kicking us with their talons. We got knocked down many times, and Ed had a nasty cut in his arm from the bite of a pterodactylus. Oh, we gotta get out of here now, Johnny shouted. We fought our way through the enraged flock to the other end of the cage. We had to squeeze through the bars one at a time, all the while getting pecked, kicked, and clawed. I just made it through and Teddy was the last to get out. We turned to run for it when he suddenly screamed. I turned around and my stomach sank as I saw the massive Geo Sternbergia had a grip on his leg and it wasn't letting go. I was frantically flapping trying to lift him off the ground. Teddy had one arm wrapped around a cage bar hanging on for dear life. Help me, he screamed desperately to us. 
We ran back and grabbed him, fighting to hold him down. The flying beast had impressive strength, though, and we had to pull with all of our might to keep it from carrying him off. It was biting into his leg with its beak, and I suddenly remembered Julia's mishap that started this mess. It gave me an idea. I reached through the bars and grabbed the beak and then pulled with all my might. I pulled and pulled and I pulled and it felt like I was towing a 16-wheeler by hand. Eventually, though, the giant terror soared enough and let go of Teddy's leg. I released the beak and was immediately forced backwards. The great flyer shook its head in disorientation and then turned and flapped its way back up to the circling flock. After a minute... The screeching and the frantic flapping slowed as the pterosaurs regained their calm. We yanked Teddy through the bars with such strength that I was worried we had dislocated his shoulders at first. However, it turned out that he was moaning because of the bleeding wound on his leg instead. Ed thankfully had brought a first aid kit and as he did on all our hikes as a just in case. We patched up Teddy's leg and Ed's arm and then waited until he was strong enough to stand back up. I flippin' told you not to do that, he said to Julia while punching her arm. Oh, come on, the poor things just got scared. It was kind of your fault, though, said Ed, not afraid to call out his own sister. Well, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't want anybody to get hurt. Nobody's saying that, Julia. It was an accident, we all know that, said Johnny, apparently playing the good cop now, if only for Julia. Hey, thanks, Johnny. At least somebody here takes my side. And Julia was given the stink I'd add as she said this. Apparently feeling the biggest betrayal was her own flesh and blood. Ah, uh, well, yeah, it was nothing. Don't worry about it. I thought that I saw a hint of a blush on Johnny's cheeks there. His stutter got a laugh out of Julia, which helped raise our spirits after the harrowing experience. Suddenly, Ed's voice floated to us from a distance. Yo, guys, you gotta come see this. We all turned and saw that he was waving us over while standing in front of that smaller building I had mentioned earlier. We looked at each other and then decided to go check it out. We rounded the corner and he pointed to a large open garage door. The inside of the building was a little dark, but we could make out some basic things inside. Benches, desks, a large pinboard on the wall, and a couple buckets. We went in to take a closer look and immediately picked up on a foul stench. It was like dead fish. It didn't take long to find out what was causing it. Ew, that's disgusting, Julia said after looking in one of the buckets. We looked inside too and were greeted with a bucket full of dead anchovies. The smell was so bad I felt hot bile rising up in my throat. I turned away to vomit, but it did that. Almost puke, but you can't quite force it out, so you gotta swallow it again thing that everybody hates. Johnny gagged loudly before announcing, Why do they got that nasty stuff? Isn't it obvious? Teddy answered. It's food for the pterosaurs. He was looking through a door that apparently led to the interior of the cage, with several empty buckets lying at the side. Huh, so these guys like seafood? I questioned. Well, of course, he said. Every species in there is a fish eater. In the wild, they would be found on shorelines and rocky beach cliffs, like modern seabirds. So are pterosaurs basically prehistoric seagulls, asked Ed, and then added while looking at his arm. 
they certainly have the same temper. Jackpot! Johnny's voice suddenly boomed. We looked over and found him dancing around a large tarp. Actually, something large was covered by a tarp. I immediately recognized the outline. He lifted the tarp to reveal the car, specifically a 1993 Model Jeep. I only knew this because I went through a car phase when I turned 16 and obsessively researched every brand and almost every model. What are you planning on doing with that? Julia asked. Well, when we're solving the mystery of the de-instinct dinosaurs, do you really want to have to walk everywhere? He said. The next big clue could be a mile away for all we know. These woods are practically endless. Ah, uh, no, I'm not getting arrested for Grand Theft Auto, swiftly retorted Julia. You do realize that we've already likely broken several laws just being here, right? Teddy chimed in. And besides, my leg isn't fully well yet. It'll be a pain in the butt to go the long way. Realizing that she lost this argument, Julia sighed. If we get caught, I'm leaving the both of you behind. That had Johnny and Teddy looking legit worried for a second, but they shrugged it off quick with some fake laughter. Johnny got to work hot wiring the car, and then we all piled in and flew out of the garage. We drove in a straight line for a while, through what looked like an old dirt road before we came to a turn. There were two sides before us. Large carnivores, straight. Medium herbivores, left. We looked at each other. The choice was so obvious that no words were said. A few nods were sufficient. The mystery would hopefully be solved soon enough. We turned left. The car buckled a little as we went down the old dirt road, heading deeper into the forest. As Johnny drove us towards the medium herbivore area, I took to investigating the car that we were in. I found lots of gear lying around. Stuff like flashlights, flares, first aid kits, and even a rifle. I then noticed a small flyer sticking out of the glove compartment. I took it out and I looked at the cover. It had a picture of a dinosaur that looked kind of like a T-Rex but with longer arms. I showed it to Teddy and asked what it was. That's an Allosaurus frigilis. You can tell by the three fingers and the head crest. As usual, he was right, as it had bright red crests shaped like small horns just above its eyes. The body was a light tan, like a lion or a cougar, and the belly was white. Its eyes were a light green. I wondered if they had one of these in the large carnivore area. If they did, I certainly didn't want to run into it. The next thing that caught my eye was the logo on the top of the page. I-P-E-S. Hmm, what's that stand for? I asked after reading the initials aloud. I think it says it underneath, commented Ed. I looked closer and saw a small row of words that indeed matched the initials above them. International Preserve for Extinct Species. So that's the place, huh? I would have expected a more flashy name, said Johnny at the wheel. Hold on now, this place is international. This changes everything. Who knows how many countries there might be working on this, exclaimed Julia. But why? Why do world powers want with a bunch of extinct reptiles? I questioned. Are you kidding me, dude? Asked Teddy. What wouldn't they want with them? Food, uh, pharmaceuticals, testing subjects, 
Heck, they might even be training these puppies for World War III. War? You can't be serious, dude, snorted Johnny. Well, maybe not, but still, there's got to be some sort of demand for these animals, or else they would most likely still be extinct. Maybe they're studying their behavior into physical attributes. Maybe this is the next phase of paleontology, I don't know. What if the black market's involved, I asked. You know, that deep web, selling human organs kind of stuff. I'm sure something like the liver of a brontosaurus would fetch a big prize. Oh, that's terrible, said Julia. How could they do that to an innocent creature? The same innocent creature that nearly tore Teddy's leg off, said Johnny with a laugh. Julia looked angry and was about to respond when Teddy answered my question from before. I'm not sure that's it. These animals seem well looked after and the place seems pretty professional. I don't think those dark web guys would be too concerned with the welfare considering they kidnapped an auction off living people. I pondered his response for a moment and then said, Yeah, that's a good point. Oh well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. The car abruptly skidded to a halt, nearly throwing me in at the front windshield. Uh, what the heck, Johnny? I exclaimed. Look, there. He was pointing in front of the car. I looked and saw three small dinosaurs running down the dirt road. They ran on two legs like the Deinonychus did, but they lacked the big claw and the long muzzle. Instead, they had short, parrot-like beaks and smaller hands and feet. They were feathered but not entirely. A row of bristly quills ran down their backs. They were green in color as was the rest of the body with white stripes running up and down like a zebra. Teddy, what are those? Dryosaurus, he shouted. They're small herbivores from the Jurassic. The dinos ran down the road and then up a small grassy hill. We quickly followed them in the car. When we had reached the hill, we got out of the car and began walking up it. But we suddenly stopped when we heard a sound that was strange from the top of the hill. Some sort of deep-pitched moaning or a grunting sound. It sounded like a large creature and it didn't sound alone. Johnny motioned for us to stay at the bottom of the hill and then slowly clambered to the top on all fours to stay stealthy. Slowly, he peeked his head over the crest of the hill and suddenly ducked down like he was startled, but he quickly looked up again. He then motioned for Teddy to join him at the top. Teddy scrambled up the side of the hill and when he looked over the crest, I heard him mutter, Holy crap, under his breath. Soon, the other three of us had joined them. When I looked over the hill, I was greeted with a massive open field. Green grass ran in a downward slope to our right, and a small stream trickled out of the woods to our left. But that's not what caught my attention at first. What did was the dozens of giant dinosaurs lumbering across the field. It was a massive group of what appeared to be herbivores. There were three species, the Dryosaurus from earlier, now in a much larger flock. A horned dinosaur with black skin and a light brown underbelly, and a strange beast with a small head, large plates along its back, and four lethal looking spikes on the tail. For once, I didn't need Teddy to identify it. Wow, that's a, a stegosaurus, right? It was my favorite as a kid. Yep, possibly the most well-protected herbivore to ever exist, Teddy finished. 
No kidding, those spikes look mean as heck, commented Ed. And what's the other one, uh, Triceratops? Julia asked while looking at the horned dinos. Uh, close, but no. Those are Nasuteratops. You can tell by the round frill and the bowl-like horns. Indeed, the horns of the animal were shaped like that of a Spanish fighting bull, but the animal itself was much bigger, about the size of a bison. An interesting thing to note is the males and females look different. Females were smaller and had dull-colored frills. Males were large and not only had a frill and face colored bright yellow, but their backsides and tails had bristly quills like a porcupine. It was definitely one of the weirdest looking dinosaurs that I had ever heard of. I could tell which gender was which as the large males with bright faces were facing off with each other. One of the biggest bulls, distinguished by having part of his left horn broken off, was sparring with a smaller male. They locked horns like how rutting deer or rhinos do, pushing back and forth and kicking up dust as they went. The commotion made the other grazing herbivores begin to move away. I began to worry that we should get back as well. And then, with one big push, the broken torn bull forced his rival onto the ground, where it broke off from him before struggling to its feet. That seemed to end the fight, as the rival bull began to back away while a broken horn pawed the ground and bellowed deeply. Dang, that was sick, said Johnny a little bit too loudly. The massive animal lifted his head after hearing his voice. He sniffed the air a couple of times and then turned to face us. By now, we had all stood up to get a better view of the fight, stupidly putting us in full view. Broken Horn regarded us with a small, beady eyes. Okay, guys, whispered Teddy. The best thing to do here is slowly back away and don't look him in the eye. Wait, I heard about this, said Johnny. I watched a Nat Geo documentary about blackbirds, and they said that they're actually big cowards. They'll only fake charge you and won't attack if they see you as too threatening. How's a black bear compare? Stand back, my friend, and let the muscle of the group handle this. He winked at the rest of us before turning to the herd. Johnny, don't, shouted Teddy, but it was already too late. Johnny spread out his arms and started running right toward the herd. He shouted as loud as he could while sprinting at the massive reptiles. Julia screamed and Ed looked away. And I almost puked as I knew he was about to get his dumb butt killed right in front of us. But surprisingly, the herd seemed spooked by his bizarre display. The dryosaurs fled and these stegosaurs grunted and formed a small huddle, with their heads in the center and spiky tails sticking out as a defense. The Nesuteratops began backing away while bellowing, and a few spooked and ran. The old bull took one step back, keeping his head lowered and eyes on Johnny. He didn't make a single sound. Johnny jumped in the air and shouted happily when he saw his reckless plan had worked, before turning back to us and shouting, See, I told you that I was. His biggest mistake of all was turning his back. The moment that he turned, Broken Horn saw his chance and barreled forward, much faster than you would think an animal that size can move. He lowered his horns as he came, clearly ready to impale Johnny. We shouted to him, told him to run or turn around or dock, but it was too late. By the time that he had turned his head, the bull's intact horn hooked him on the side. Thankfully, it didn't actually strike his body, but it caught onto his coat and pulled him along for the ride. 
The bull paused for a moment and then with one motion threw its head skyward, sending Johnny flying through the air like he was shot out of a cannon. He must have made it 25 feet off the ground and had at least three solid seconds of airtime. He screamed and flailed as gravity pulled him back down, and a resounding thud echoed across the field as Flash met dirt. There was also a slight cracking sound, which Johnny later informed us was one of his ribs. He laid there motionless for a second, and then with a muffled growl, slowly began pulling himself off the ground. Big mistake. He was right in front of Broken Horn, who snorted and lowered his head to charge again. We shouted once again, both at Johnny to get out of the way and at the dinosaur in the hopes of scaring it off. Teddy and Edmund even began picking up rocks and twigs and throwing them at the animal, which drew its attention towards us. This momentary distraction helped Johnny begin to crawl away, but I realized that we would now be on the receiving end of those horns. And then the strangest thing happened. The whole forest around us suddenly went quiet. All the birds and frogs that we were hearing just a second ago had stopped instantly. The dinosaurs also changed. Almost in unison, the herbivores lifted their heads, sniffing the air and seemingly growing restless. Broken Horn turned his gaze to our left, down at the stream by the tree line. It seems that he could see something we couldn't. A loud snap of a twig in that area made us jump. It spooked the herbivores too. The Dryosaurus began making some sort of alarm call, a weird, high-pitched chirping sound. They turned and ran down the field, and the Stegosaurus followed at a slower pace, waving their spiky tails behind them as they kept the same defensive formation as before. Brokenhorn lowered his head and growled at the trees by the stream, slowly backing up as he did. The other one followed suit until they suddenly turned and began to gallop after their herdmates. The dinos stampeded past us and began to grow smaller in the distance. Before I could think about what might have scared them off, another loud snap of a twig just to our left made us all jump. Then another and another. We turned and some of us screamed when out of the bushes ran. Johnny. He had taken the long way around to avoid detection from the angry bull, but had also given us a heart attack in the process. Jesus, dude, I yelled. Next time say something first. I thought you were another dino sneaking up on us. Relax, man, it's only me. Johnny had a wide, almost crap-eating grin. I mean, it worked, didn't it? Sure, I might have busted a rib butt. That was incredibly dangerous. Do you have any idea how lucky you are to be alive right now? Shouted a very angry Teddy. Hey, it works, so stop complaining. I mean, that didn't look like normal behavior to me. Why would the lead bull attack you like that if it was just going to run away? It seemed more like something else had spooked them. Hey man, quit trying to steal my glory. I stopped, turning into their argument at this point when I noticed Julia. Her face pale like all the blood had drained from it. Her eyes locked on Johnny. No, not Johnny. I realized with a skip of my heart. She was fixated on something behind him. Ed had noticed too and spoke up. Sis, what's wrong? What are you looking at? The other two looked over now. Julia, said Johnny. Slowly, she raised a shaking arm to point behind where Johnny stood. What is that? Johnny turned in and then we saw it. 
A very large, feather-covered dinosaur stood down the hill from us. It stood on two legs. Its feathers were white with faint black stripes, almost like a white tiger. Practically every part of it was feathered except the feet, the snot and skin around the eyes. The skinner's scales were pitch black, and it had long arms with three-fingered hands, each tipped with deadly-looking claws, but it lacked the toe claw of a raptor. I already knew that it wasn't a raptor, though. It was way too big to be one. It looked to be about seven or eight feet tall and something like 20 to 25 feet long. It just stood there, staring up at us. I suddenly remembered the dinosaur on the IPS banner, the Allosaurus. Could this be it? But just as I quickly realized how different it looked, the Allosaurus was depicted as tan in color, with a red head crest and a scaly body. This animal was definitely something else. Teddy, I stuttered out. What are we dealing with here? It took him a moment to respond. I think that's the Uteranus Whaley, he stammered, his voice quaking a little. Tyrannosis, you mean like T-Rex? I asked. Yeah, they were distant relatives. I looked back down at the animal. The only thing that looked Tyrannosaurus-ish was the head shape, which was broad. While looking at the head, I noticed its eyes. They were a deep golden color, and they regarded us carefully, calculatingly. I could swear it seemed to know that I was looking at it, and it looked right back at me. Its eyes made it look smart, scary smart. You guys, I think we should go, I said in a low tone. Are you sure? It doesn't seem like it's going to attack, asked Dad. Yeah, it's really just looking at us added Johnny. But I don't like the way that it's looking at us, I wanted to say. I don't know, it might be territorial, Teddy said. Julia finally spoke up. It's weird, why isn't it doing anything? I looked at it again. It stood perfectly still, almost like a statue. And those eyes, those cruel golden eyes, kept watching us relentlessly. It was like a gunslinger waiting for us to make the first move. Julia said, You guys, I think we should. I heard three footsteps behind us and went to lock. I only turned far enough to watch the clawed hand go right through Julia's chest. She screamed in sudden fear and pain as a shower of blood exploded out of the front of her body. We all screamed at the horrific sight, and my horror only grew tenfold when I looked a little higher. There was another one, this one even bigger than the first with blonde yellow feathers instead of white feathers. It had its left hand embedded in Julia's body. With one motion, it lifted her into the air. Julia! Ed cried out in desperation. I looked around for something, anything to use as a weapon. I had to save her, I, I had to do something. I found two large sticks and I grabbed both and then shouted to Johnny. I tossed him one stick and he immediately understood. And we charged forward, raising the sticks over our heads and yelling in what I can best describe as our attempt at a battle cry. We brought the sticks down on the beast's flank and kept smacking it over and over. I felt my hands bleed as I tried to force the monster to release my friend. The hit seemed to actually hurt it as it growled at us and stepped back, still holding Julia. And we rushed forward for another attack, 
only to be met by a massive tail that sent us hurtling backwards. I hit a tree so hard the wind was instantly knocked out of me. I looked up and to my terror and dismay, the predator still had a grip on Julia. She was struggling to break free, kicking and punching at the arm of the dinosaur. Her efforts were seemingly in vain though. The claws had a grip on her. I heard another growl and I looked over to see the white dinosaur running up the hill. Then suddenly, another white one appeared around the same size as the first. My god, they were going to rip her apart. I stood back up and rushed forward ready to fight. I knew that I would most likely die, but if it was to save my friends, I was ready for it. Johnny followed me, apparently also ready to sacrifice himself. Ed and Teddy joined in too. It seemed like this was where we would make our last stand. Stop, shouted Julia. We all stopped immediately. What? I shouted. You'll never make it. It's me they want. Run now while you still can. Are you crazy? Screamed Johnny. Just go and hurry. I could see the dinosaur's head lowering. Its lips parting to reveal large, sharp teeth. Julia, you can't. Screamed a desperate Edmund. She stared down at him and for just a moment despite all the chaos. The whole world seemed to slow down and grow quiet. I could only watch as the two stared into each other's tear-filled eyes, both full of sorrow and fear. But in Julia's eyes, I saw something else. Something fierce. Determination. I love you. Those were her final words spoken to her younger brother. The Uteranus suddenly clamped its massive jaw around her head. Her whole body went limp instantly, and she was gone. Edmund let out a cry of pure anguish, a soul-wrenching sound that hurt my ears more than the sickening crunch of bones did. He fell to his knees, and me and Johnny had to grab him by his arms and drag him away. He was still screaming Julia's name, telling us to go back, telling us that we could still save her. The poor kid. His mind must have been fried by such a horrifying sight. I know dang well that mine was. We kept dragging him, even as tears streamed down our cheeks and made our visions blurry. Yet I could still see well enough to watch the carnage unfold. The Uteranus pack were now fighting over Julia's remains, tearing at her flesh and bones while snapping, clawing, and growling at each other. The larger yellow one seemed to be the most dominant, as it took most of the body from the other two. They ate with alarming speed and soon all that was left were her tattered clothes hanging from their blood-soaked teeth. The yellow alpha turned towards us, still dragging Ed. It let out a deep, whooping call, almost like a crane, to the other two, and then began running towards us. Oh crap, I exclaimed. Ed, buddy, we need you to get up now. Teddy tried sweet-talking him, but it wasn't working. The dinosaurs were getting closer. Ed, we really need you to get up. They were practically on top of us. Ed, you gotta... Johnny pushed him out of the way and shouted right in Ed's face. Ed, you gotta move now or so help me God. Ed finally snapped out of his shock and took to his feet and we ran. We ran as fast as we could and as far as we could. We ran as the muscles in our legs burned and our lungs screamed for oxygen. But still we ran. The dinosaurs weren't far behind. I could hear them whooping and growling at each other as they pursued us, and still we ran. 
We ran until we burst out into an open field. There was a fence lining it, a high voltage one, but we ran towards it anyway, as our only other option was what killed our best friend only minutes ago. Johnny reached my fence first and to my surprise, simply threw himself onto it. I fully expected him to get shot, but he didn't. I guess the power was off. He climbed to the top and jumped over. Teddy scrambled up next like a squirrel being chased by a dog. It was just me and Ed now. We climbed up together, huffing and puffing as the dinosaurs drew nearer. Ed reached the top first and extended a hand to help me. I reached for it, but out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of the Uteranus just below me leaping up with its massive mouth open to grab me. I screamed and flung my hand out. Ed took my hand and pulled me out of harm's way, and just as those gargantuan jaws slammed shut with such force, a few teeth popped out. If my leg had been there, I would have gone home hopping on one foot. We fell over the fence with no grace and hit the ground hard. I rolled over and looked up. The three giant predators stared angrily from the other side of the fence. I got up and slowly backed to the others. The dinosaurs began to pace around the fence, letting loose low growls of frustration. While at least two of them did, the yellow one, the alpha, simply looked around at the fence and then it pushed its snout against the fence as if it were testing it. Its eyes widened when it realized the fence was safe. Oh no. It suddenly attacked the fence, using its claws and teeth to tear it up. The other two noticed and rushed over. They're coming through. Run, I shouted. To where? Teddy questioned. I looked around and we were completely out in the open. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide but still we had to at least try. Julia died to give us a fighting chance and I wasn't about to give up so soon. That way, go, I shouted to my team. We ran hard, but the dinosaurs were still gaining. I realized that we were going to get caught at this rate. Up ahead were some big rocks and as we ran past them, Ed suddenly tripped on one. We stopped and rushed back to help him, but we realized that we were too late. They were closing the gap and they would be all over us in a matter of seconds even if we tried to run again. I looked down at the rocks and grabbed the biggest one. Everyone grab a rock, this is it. We all armed ourselves and I was fully aware the odds weren't in our favor. Like it all, but I wasn't afraid of death at that point. I think none of us were. We just wanted revenge. The lead dinosaur opened its mouth and extended its claws, about to attack me in front. I held my ground and shouted my final words. Come and get it. An earth-shaking roar humbled my ultimatum. They suddenly stopped dead in their tracks, not looking at us, but looking at something directly behind us. Their eyes widened in apparent fear. I heard it before I saw it. A loud thum, thum, thum of approaching footsteps. Whatever it was, it was big, even bigger than the Uteranus. Another roar resounded, this time ten times louder than the last. It sounded like a mixture of a crocodilian bellow and a cassowary noise, but with so much bass it shook my very core. The sound was right behind us, and when I turned to look, I was met with something both amazing and terrifying. An absolutely giant dinosaur stood only ten feet from us, it was definitely a carnivore, and its mouth was opened in a threatening gesture towards the smaller Uteranus.
This helped to reveal the biggest teeth that I had ever seen, each the size of a banana. They were shaped like steak knives, but had serrations like a shark. Its arms were somewhat short, but were tipped with three claws. Its body was scaly with an orange color, mixed with a leopard-like black spotted pattern. The only feathers that it had were on the back of its tall head, and they were more like long quills than feathers. And it was enormous, easily over 10 feet tall and probably over 45 feet long. I thought for a split second this might actually be a T-Rex, but I realized the dang thing was even bigger somehow. Carcurodontosaurus, I heard Teddy whisper. The mammoth carnivore kept its mouth open as it walked right past us and towards the other dinosaurs. They growled at it and held out their arms as a threat, but clearly they had nothing on their much larger rival. It kept walking forward, teeth bared like a giant scaly hippo. And then it took a few great strides forward and roared again. So loudly the birds in the distant trees scattered. This sent the Uteranosaurus into full retreat. They legged it through the gap in the fence and didn't stop running, even after making it into the trees. The Carcuodontrosaurus watched them go with a few snarls and snorts, satisfied with its victory. And then it saw us. It looked down at the four scared teenagers lying by its feet and seemingly felt the same about us as it did to the other dinosaurs. We were intruders in its territory. It opened its mouth again with a menacing snarl like a deep-pitched crocodile hiss. It took a step forward. Was this it? Was this how we went out? Just as it took another step forward, a sudden pop and hiss sounded out, and green smoke began to billow around us. The carnivore shook its head and breathed in and out. It seemed like there was a scent in the green smoke it didn't like. Before I could comprehend what was happening, a pair of hands wrapped around my shoulders. I looked up and was shocked to see the young woman that we previously saw outside the aviary. Come on, let's go. She barred to me and began pulling me across the grass. I looked over and saw the other three being dragged away as well. One by the man that she was with before, Elliot, if I remember correctly, and the other two by what looked like security guards in uniform. They were pulling us to a nearby jeep, and just as we had hopped in, I looked back and got one last good look at the behemoth. It was leaving the area repelled by the green smoke. It lifted its head to watch our car roll away. Orange-red eyes regarded us with a silent fury, but instead of chasing us, it kept going the other way. I guess it had had enough for one day. The long drive was arduous and we were all out of breath and felt like emotionless husks. After everything we saw, everything we went through, I knew none of us would ever be the same. I heard Ed silently weeping and repeating Julia's name over and over. Teddy and Johnny patted him on the shoulder though I could see tears forming in Johnny's eyes too. Eventually we had arrived at a large facility where we were escorted out of the car and each taken to a separate room. Questioning rooms, and I was with the woman. Okay, kid, I'm gonna ask you some questions, and my friends are gonna do the same with your friends. If you talk, it'll make things go much easier and quicker. Once we're done, I'll talk to my higher-ups and hopefully figure out what I'm gonna do with you all. Okay? Yeah, okay, I stuttered. I really didn't want to do this. I just wanted to go home to forget any of this ever happened. Our following conversation went a little something like this. 
Well, I'll start. My name is Amanda Wellington. I'm the lead animal behavioralist here and the head of the ranger team. Now, who are you? I told her my name. How did you and your friends get here? I explained the whole story. Our hike, our discovery of the pipes, and our encounter with the Deinonychus. Oh, you saw Hawkeye. That's its name? She's the head female of our troop. A crafty little critter learned how to climb trees to escape her enclosure. She's the one responsible for the troubles that we've been having recently. After she got out, we had a major power issue that shut down fences across the preserve, resulting in many animals roaming outside of their zones. I'm sure you saw that with the Uteranus. They're smart and mean, especially Lioness. She's the mother of the other two, the white males. I stayed silent. I really wish she had shut up because her description was only bringing back the horrific images of Julia's demise. Hey kid, you alright? Amanda asked. No. Is something bothering you? Everything is bothering me. What is this place? How did you bring back dinosaurs? What are you using them for? She paused. Well, I'm legally not allowed to answer those questions. I figured as much, but then she added... But you seem like a nice kid, so I'll say just a little. I leaned in now, eager to hear what she had to say. You probably don't know this, but cloning technology has advanced rapidly in the past 20 years. We're almost on the verge of creating cloned human beings. This place was created to test the limits of this technology. An international coalition formed in secrecy. If the world knew, they probably wouldn't handle it well. You know how people get they spook, they panic, they fearmonger. They make crappy clickbait news articles. Something like this would cause a media explosion of massive proportions and would strain diplomatic tensions. But why dinosaurs? They were the ultimate test for our technology, bringing back species from millions of years ago, with only fragments of proteins left in the bones to constitute DNA. Not only have we brought them back, they're almost perfect replicas of their prehistoric ancestors. None of that Jurassic Park nonsense. It also helps this place to be the paleontology capital of the world. Ever noticed how paleontologists constantly change their reports and hypothesis these days? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, thank the IPES for that. We're making groundbreaking discoveries every day regarding dinosaur behavior and anatomy. It's a goldmine of scientific information unlike any before. She said something else, but I didn't hear it. My mind had started to wander again back to Julia. Hey kid, you're zoning out on me again, hello? She snapped her fingers in my face. Huh? Oh yeah, sorry, I was just, uh... Just what, kid? I can tell something's really bothering you, and it doesn't have to do with the stuff you asked. She put her hand on mine like a mother helping her kid would. You can tell me anything, I promise. I sighed. There would be no easy way to tell her this. There were five of us at first. A girl named Julia was with us. She's Edmund's older sister. Oh, well, where is she then? She, she was... I sighed again. The pack killed her. That made Amanda's eyes widen with shock. She suddenly excused herself and left the room for a minute. I heard her talking with someone outside. The only words that I could make out was her saying, Get out there and find her. She came back in and said, Oh, don't worry. There's a group of security officers that are going to go find her. 
What? Did you not just hear me? She's dead. Oh, you might have seen something wrong. I know how the mind can affect you during times of. For Christ's sakes, lady, it bit her head off. I was right there when it happened. A moment of silence. She's gone. My hands went up to cover my face. As the tears came, I heard her phone buzzing. She took it out, spoke with someone on the other end, and her voice suddenly turned low and somber. Really? She asked and then sighed. Alright, I'll be out there soon. I'm with one of the other kids right now. And then she hung up. What did I tell you? I said through silent sobs. She's gone. Suddenly, my hands weren't covering my face. I looked up to see her holding them. I'm so terribly sorry about all of this. You kids should have never gone through something so horrible. And I'm very sorry about your friend. She leaned over and hugged me. And though I don't like to admit it, that little display of affection and understanding made all the tears come flooding out in big, ugly sobs. When I eventually calmed down, she spoke up again. I need to get back out there. I'll come back as soon as I can and then we'll decide what to do with you. Hopefully we can just send you home as long as you never tell anyone. But what if I can't? I asked. She paused and frowned a little and I didn't like that. Don't worry about that right now, just get some rest. And then she laughed. It's been 15 minutes and she's still not back yet. They don't know I still have my phone and I'm typing this story in the hopes that someone, anybody will see it. Maybe you can get us out of here. Maybe you can call for help. I don't know what they plan on doing with us, but it can't be anything good. We've seen too much. We can't be let out. Surely that can't be the case, right? Maybe I should hold out hope. Maybe these people aren't as bad as I think. So if anybody's reading this, me, Teddy, Johnny, and Edmund are still here. We're still here. Help us. Before we're forgotten. No one believes what I saw as a kid. Now I can't sleep when it rains. Written by Entropy Kid. It's raining now. I can't sleep. It's hard for me to talk about this openly. No one has ever really believed me before, and I don't know why any of you would now. I was young, fragile. I get that. Trauma can crack an adolescent brain to create fantastical excuses for things they weren't developed enough to understand. But I was 12, not stupid. I saw what happened. I know what happened. I need to get this off my chest. I just want someone to hear me out that doesn't instantly hand me a prescription. I grew up in East Texas. Rain country. Every bit as wet as West Texas is dry. Several popular fishing lakes and the occasional town were all that broke up the crowded, looming pines that towered over us. And timber was a boon. Many fathers paid their mortgage and put food on the table with the inevitable loan taken on their backs. Still, for as simple as they were, my family were quite capable. Hunters, lumberjacks, the occasional police officer or military vet. These were not soft people. And my Uncle Mick was one of the hardest. Not in his heart, of course. As cholesterol-laden as it was, the titan of a man was a softy at his core. Grizzled, scarred hands often pawed around mine, helping adjust a rifle sight. 
pulling a hook free from the gaping mouth of my first bass. Desperately pointing between the two numbers on my math homework question, he likely understood less than I did. Mick dwarfed my father by a clean foot, the eldest brother in a family born into log trade. Years of timber work made for wide shoulders and corded legs. He had built me a small writing desk for my 11th birthday in his carpentry shed. I adored it. Stars like the one we would camp under sporadically hand-carved into the pine sides. I still have it somewhere. I just can't look at it now. I cherish the sleepover memories. He had no kids himself after my aunt had passed. He never remarried. He had a standing offer that I could come over any time and stay any night. Many s'mores were consumed at his back porch those days under the Texas stars. Just me, him, and Blue. You know every redneck has or has had a dog named Blue, right? This is scientific law right between gravity and thermodynamics. To this day, I don't know if my uncle was being ironic or simplistic when he had named him. All I know is that by the time I met that blue tick hound, if he wasn't the oldest dog on planet Earth, he was in the top three. Alright, that's the fun stuff. This is the part that's hard. And talking about that day describing his house, it's, it's tough. My psychiatrist says it's good to journal my thoughts which brought me here. Even though I found a career in copywriting later in life, I've always fancied myself a writer. There are some things that I just don't have words for, or the words simply won't do justice to the reality of it. I'll do my best. It's been 24 years. He lived on a small ranch, nothing intense, more of a hobby than a livelihood. Still, he had a decent collection of animals to take care of. A coop housing 20 or so chickens that he would let out to roam his property every morning. Mixed in were a few stray ducks that had settled down with them. As a kid, I always enjoyed thinking that the ducks believed that they were chickens themselves. I mean, it wasn't unusual to see a mother duck caring for a trail of baby chicks behind her. Having nested a set of eggs after their hen was picked off by a hawk or a coyote. More importantly, he had a dozen goats. I don't remember what breed. He had built a wooden gymnasium for them to climb and play on, mainly to help lift them off the muddy earth when it rained. Huffrot was a constant battle for livestock here. It was always a sonorous event when my dad pulled into the driveway, and that day was no different. Goats bleated for attention and food, and knowing they would receive both when I eventually convinced my uncle for us to go see them. Several chickens opened a full gate across the long, grassy yard towards my dad's F-150. Drawn caws echoed around the door as I opened it, expecting leftover tater tots or french fries. I loved it here. My house was eight miles up the road, not too far but far enough a kid shouldn't walk it both ways. I waved at my dad as he pulled out of the drive and ran up to my uncle's front porch. Surprisingly, the door was locked. I don't remember a time that it was ever locked before. I made my way to the back porch, the one that I preferred anyway. The front had an awning to keep people that visited dry from the sporadic rain. The rear had no such obstruction, meaning the only obstacle to see those starry Texas nights were the treetops and the clouds. It was damp, 
The wet grass licked the sides of my tennis shoes, sharing their moisture a little too effectively. There had been a small shower earlier in the morning at my house, and it eventually moved this way, I had guessed. As I walked up the three small steps of the back porch, I heard a loud bang from his shed, like something had slammed against metal, followed by the sound of something hitting the ground, hard. I stared at my uncle's little red carpentry hut, but I heard no cry, no whimper, only silence. I took a single step towards it when a meaty palm landed on my shoulder with more weight than it had ever had before. Hey, where's your dad? Uncle Mick seemed to sputter. You shouldn't be here. I watched him. I can't explain why, instinct or childhood curiosity. I really don't know why. I just remember that log of an arm guiding me to the back door of the house and his eyes. God, his eyes. They locked in the woodworking shed as we had moved inside. A kind of stare that predicates a fight or a hunt. Adrenaline pumped orbs that an animal has before it's eaten by a large predator. I snuck one last glance at the shed and I was guided indoors, noting the crimson wooden walls and the bolted metal roof. There are two things to remember for younger readers here. First, we didn't have internet access in a lot of places in the 90s, especially in rural Texas. Wi-Fi was essentially sorcery, and we had no practicing wizards. Computers and phones had hard lines. My uncle quickly headed for the ladder. And second, no cell phones. I ended up getting my first cell phone when I was an adult. I just got out of basic training and I had collected two paychecks to get one. They were a luxury in the early 2000s and this was years before that. It's difficult to understand how alone you could truly be back then. This also meant that he had no way to contact my father making the 8 mile drive back to our house. And that's when the rain started. Christ, the rain. In truth, the pattering droplets were my lullaby as a kid. No matter if I was at home in a vehicle, at my uncle's or a friend's, the irregular symphony of water tapping its cords on various surfaces always tugged my eyelids down. My uncle said that, why when it stormed, his pregnant goats would normally give birth. Any predators would be hiding from the rain, opting to rest and wait instead. Plus the bonus of covering the scent of blood that would guide a carnivore to freshly born offspring, and wasn't lost to me, even back then. There was safety in the rain, a part of the world's order. An unspoken treaty that all natural creatures understood and abided by, I was naive. It was light at first. Uncle Mick's kitchen was attached to the back wall and had a large double-pane window that took in most of his backyard. As the rain steadily grew, the chicken coop and goat stables slowly faded out of view, leaving the only real visuals in the downpour being a handful of tree trunks in the porch itself. Blue came up to me in the kitchen. His body trembled so I reached down to pet him. He was damp, caught on in the rain from before, I had guessed. His eyes looked eerily similar to my uncle's. I heard him speaking in the other room, I assumed with my mother. It was hurried and short, but I don't remember what was said. My child brain processed the meaning well enough. They needed to come and get me. 
I wasn't mad or even upset, only confused. The rain got heavier. Do you remember being a child? Most of us don't normally remember a specific or traumatic events that we do. It wasn't the visuals or the sounds that haunt me, not really. My psychiatrist says that I can see images and hear sounds, but what I really remember is how they made me feel. She's right. I remember the sound, the screaming goats muffled by the now pounding rain. I remember the sight, a single white furred hoofed leg landing flatly on the plywood porch. I remember the feeling of that shadow, standing half behind the furthest tree, obscured by rain and distanced. I remember the feeling of it watching me. My uncle returned to the kitchen now and he had a rifle. I was too young to know what kind. Stay inside. Your pa will be back soon and we have to leave. He said with a chilling flatness that I had never heard from him. That was my cool, fun-loving uncle, right? I heard Metal scream. I didn't even know Metal could at that age, but somehow I knew. Mixed fingers as drummed the weapon with a nervous pattern, unable to remain still with heightened nerves and hormones. This is when he looked at the limb on the porch. What little blood it had before it washed away. His face steeled, but the nervousness remained in his eyes. Stay here. Lock the door behind me. He said without an attempt to smile or comfort me in any way. I nodded, like a child could protest. He pulled a long cap from somewhere that I didn't see. John Deere. I assume now that it was to keep the rain out of his eyes to shoot, and he couldn't take an umbrella while using a rifle. He opened the door and stepped into the downpour defiantly. He didn't even take a coat. I've said for years that the one thing humanity has never deserved are dogs. Whatever fate my uncle was going to face out there, he wasn't going alone. Blue faithfully passed through the frame as well. The truest, purest love a man will ever have is with his dog. Whatever happened now, as in all parts of their lives, the best friends would face it together. I slid the deadbolt on the back door and I hurried to the window. I couldn't hear the goats anymore, if I had heard them at all. The rain had grown harder somehow, loud enough that the pounding in the roof sounded like being under a hundred out of sync marching bands. The furthest trees, including the one with the shadow before, were no longer visible. I could barely see past at the edge of the porch now. My uncle grabbed an axe from the stack of firewood. He stuck the handle into the back of his belt until the metal head hung snugly on it. Drenched already, both hands in the rifle, he marched down the stairs toward the pens, blue dutifully beside him. They were gone in moments. It's hard to explain how the next few minutes felt. I remember hearing my breathing, little more than a shallow gas. I remember seeing a shadow, I think, dart somewhere to my right. I remember that feeling, being helpless, that ominous, overbearing pressure of a child's fear. The weirdest part of it all was the silence. Christ, the silence. The thunderless storm drove straight down, lacking both electricity and wind. It was like being under a waterfall, a noise crashing completely around me in every direction. 
But I'm telling you, there was silence. I felt anguish in that waiting. That desperate anticipation to hear something, anything other than that god-awful rain. I ran to the landline. I needed my mom, my dad. I needed protection. I needed safety. I needed away from here. I felt guilty then, less so now. Like I was abandoning my uncle to his fate. As if I could do anything to help him. Silence. Again. In a cacophony of sound. It's the silence I remember the most. The silence of the animals outside. The silence of a loaded gun not firing. The silence in the phone receiver. The anticipation built in me more. I longed for a noise to pierce the quiet. Desperate for it. Imagination is a boon for an artist. It's a nightmare to a frightened child. I still think that I heard a gunshot then. At least I thought I did. I sprinted to the back window anyway, squinted into the downpour. I saw them. Two shadows in the yard. One was clearly Uncle Mick, hunched slightly forward as one does in a fight. The axe bobbed in his right hand, but he held his left arm to his body. The other shadow loomed directly behind him facing towards the house, even more obscured by the rain. It looked like a man in a long cape that pinched up between the shoulders, combining to the base of an overly round head, and it was taller than my uncle. Uncle Mick was 6'6", and my dad later told me he was a linebacker in school, the largest player on the team. Only one of the other lumberjacks was able to meet him eye to eye. He was looking up at it. I remember hearing his yell, unsure if it was rage or pain or both. I remember seeing the axe rise, remember those four massive shadows unfurling in the storm. Black tarps expanding out, a giant maw. Like a horrible or coniferous flower blooming in a forgotten jungle, ready to swallow him whole. I remember that feeling, God that feeling, as those quad wings slammed downward, launching both shadows into the air and out of sight in a single soundless burst. The feeling of disbelief, of shock, of dread. The feeling of my heart sinking to my feet. And then the silence. I remember the silence. I shook so hard that my head was physically rattling. Vision shakily scanned what distance they could make. He was gone, just gone. It was like that for a long while too. I don't know how long. I just shook and stared. Time and horror stretched reality in odd ways. And then I saw the shadow. I don't know how long it had been there or how I had missed it. I never saw it move. It was simply there, slightly to the left of the porch. I couldn't see its eyes, but it was staring at me. I could feel it. My breathing had slowed to a crawl, but it stopped completely when I noticed a second shadow behind it. And then the third. I ran to my uncle's room. I didn't know what else to do. I squeezed my frame underneath his beds, the irony even then not lost to me. A child hiding under the bed for monsters. I stayed there for so long. The rain never ceased, didn't even let up a little in that time. It was a crushing, oppressive sensation that even those words do not do justice. And then it finally happened. The silence broke with a new, growing sound. 
Sirens. The good guys were coming. Good guys with guns and tanks and rocket launchers, I had childishly hoped. Maybe Uncle Mick was still alive. Maybe they would get here in time to save him too. I emerged from under the bed now, making my way over to the bedroom door. It stood open, leading into a long hallway that saw directly down to the kitchen and out the rear window. I slowly slid one iris around the frame. I'll never forget. No drug, no shrink, no medication or prognosis or freaking kumbaya will ever erase it. The giant standing in the window. Rain obscured its visage still with frustrating ceaselessness. That rounded skull faced me. The shadows circling down to the neck and then out to broad shoulders. And then running down out of sight under the frame. I could see no details still. And even as these sirens grew louder, I grew more afraid. It moved slightly. Its right shoulder rose as the arm did the same. Three long shapes appeared from beneath the window, each home to an exaggerated claw. The trio tapped a three-note staccato against the glass, as its left hand rose as well now. I screamed then. Not as a child, nothing so innocent. It was a bestial thing. Something that I couldn't imitate now if I even wanted to. Something I don't think any word could describe. They said that I was screaming still when they had found me wedged between my uncle's nightstand and bed frame, curled in a weighty, nerved Aladdin ball. The last real memory that I have is intangible. Not the shadowy, haunting visage unreadable in the storm. Not the sound of those vile digits taunting me with their irregular, chaotic cadence upon the glass that I could somehow hear over the rain. Not even the sight of its left hand slowly lifting my uncle's scalp above the window's lab. My psychiatrist is right. As horrifying as these images are, and as weird as it sounds, my final memory is a feeling. The feeling of a hidden sneer. A quieted joy that monster had with its raw terror. It was no animal. It was not mindless. It added with purposeful, deliberate malice. Even now, I think it let me live only because it recognized the emotional damage it had left upon me, dooming a child to a lifetime of therapists, drugs, and inpatient centers. It was evil. That's the last thing I remember. It's been a parade of well-meaning psychiatrists and other diplomas ever since. Drugs that I can't pronounce for diagnosis that I don't understand. I was in my 30s before I had the courage to talk to my parents about it. My dad wanted no part of Corey's. Said I needed to let it go and move on. That's what Uncle Mick would have wanted. He's right, of course, but some things are more important than being right. Mom helped me, though. They had copies of the police reports stashed away in a small office safe, tucked under their banking documents. They hadn't been opened for a long time. My parents had told me some truths as a kid. Mom said Mick was rattled on the phone, telling her to call the police and send his brother back up there to get them, and then the phone died. The police said the downpour completely halted when they had reached the driveway. Not that it died down in severity before eventually fading completely, the way that rain normally does. The rain stopped. Just stopped. They also told me that all the animals were missing, 
goats, uh, chickens, uh, ducks, blue. There was no blood and no feathers or fur tufts. They were just gone. They also told me one lie. We held a traditional wake for Uncle Mac, but not a funeral. My parents told me that they never found his body. It had vanished with the others. My uncle always said that when he died, he wanted to be cremated and his remains scattered on his property. Well, he got half his wish. I shouldn't have looked at those pictures. There was a final question the police also couldn't answer. The last Polaroid in the folder, my uncle's little red woodshed, the corner of the metal roof now pointed skyward, ripped and twisted into a standing position. The officers had made only one note about it, chalking it up to the storm. Tornadoes did damage like this all the time, I grant that, but not without damaging the trees, the pens, or the frickin' house right next to it. I often try to disassociate, to see it from the outside as a normal adult would. What's more likely, a pack of rain demons or a small twister? I get it. But I am no normal adult. I've never gotten to be a normal adult. I still see it sometimes in my sleep. Imagine it stalking up on my urban apartment window to finish its job from decades earlier. Me, finally ripe from dread like some kind of succulent human fruit. I still hear the rain sometimes. Either a small patter outside my Nevada window, on the rare occasions that we do get rain, or the last few drips from a leaky faucet or a showerhead that rings far louder than it should. I always expect that oppressive cascade of sound to slowly build its weight behind them. I remember the way the rain used to lull me to sleep as a child. Now it heralds to a foreboding, nauseating night of panic attacks and no sleep. I still feel it, like it's out there, like it knows me, knows where I am and what I'm feeling, like this is what it wanted. I need a drink. Thank you so much for listening to all of today's stories, I really hope that you enjoyed them. No matter where you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound, and as always... Stay creepy.